Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber, and today we're joined by nobody. Aww. We're all alone in the Brodsky International Studios. Jess is taking a, uh, um, a pilgrimage to rationalist Mecca, and she's, <laughs> she's uh, in the Bay Area with a, with a friend who used to live out there, and uh, seeing all the cool sites, meeting all the cool people, and yeah. leaving us here to... I guess keep things running while she's out. So I asked her to take a bunch of pictures of Reach for me because I really wanted to like know what they do there, how they do it. Because I think it'd be cool to have something like that in Denver. I didn't know what Reach was. Okay. So what is? Reach? Oh, oh, Reach is the what does it stand for? Rationalist and Effective Altruism Community Hub. Hub. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. So, uh, it, but it's it's like a community center for all the uh, rational people out there. Yeah. It looks cool. Yeah. Uh, one note, nothing against them, but it looks bizarrely cluttered. You guys should fix that. It freaked me out. So, <laughs> <laughs> didn't freak me out, but I'm like, why is there like a code on the floor? Come on, people. Ah, uh, um, okay. But no, it looks it looks cool. So, is this just like a, a space that someone rents that anyone who wants to come in can come in and hang out? I have no idea. Hmm. In fact, if there's anyone listening who knows about Reach and would like to talk to us about it, I would love to like hear about that. Cool. And maybe do an episode on you know how you can start a little community center thing. Uh, we can ask Jess to ping people while she's out there. We should do that. We should do that. Okay. All right. Uh, but um, since Jess isn't here, we didn't want to do like anything huge without her. So we said, oh, let's just finish up that listener feedback we got because we did still have a bunch of, and it was like good. And I am a little bit worried though that we're doing two listener feedbacks in a row. Like, mm. don't think... It's still content. It is still content, but... Let us know in the comments if you hate us doing comments for two episodes in a row. Yeah, yeah, seriously, because uh, I, I, I wanted to, like, you know, wear people out with, like, oh, God, another feedback episode. It's like back in the uh, 80s and 90s, every now and then they had a filler episode where they would just show clips of... Yeah. Oh, God, clip episodes. If yes. they did two in a row and you're waiting week by week, that oh, would suck. I know. But this isn't a clip show. We're not showing our greatest highlights. We're visiting, no. we're continuing conversations. Yes, and we are. The other, but, the other benefit of doing it now is that a lot of these were... You know, some of the comments from these were from older episodes before Jess was on full time. So mm-hmm. I don't know if we actually have any that old, but whatever. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to dive right in? in. Yeah. Let's do that. And All also, right. we should try to keep on it better next time. Always have a little bit of feedback at the end of an episode so that we don't get up in this backlog up again. Yeah. Part of our thing is we, re- we start recording a little late, which now at least it's daylight savings and all that. So maybe it'll be, you know, less depressing to start recording before dark. <laughs> right. um, and the we're mindful of how long it takes to edit, but... Yeah. Um, this one's actually a good quick one. We had a comment from one of our patrons, Tim Sharp. Um, I'm pretty sure the full names are on Patreon. So, yeah. um, anyway, so Tim wanted to say thanks for the bonus content. Uh, I guess that's a reminder that we do put out some stuff. We try to put some out every episode. Anyway, so Tim says, uh, thanks for the bonus content. By the way, are you planning on updating the website? As much as I love, parentheses, loved Katrina, she hasn't hosted in ages. Mm. And on a related subject, I'd love for you to bring, bring her back as an occasional guest. P.S. Welcome, Jess. So we do have news on that. Jess is on the website now. Oh, is she on the website now? Oh, I thought you said you were doing it. Right. You, uh, Jess will be on the website by the time this airs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yes, uh, she's our new full-time host and she's awesome. Um, I'd love to have Katrina on at some point. I know that she's been busy. She's got, uh, I mean, she's had a career. She's had a kid. So Yeah, she has a um, brand new infant right now, which is taking up like all of her energy. We can have the kid on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we can, dude, it'd be cool if we got his first words ever on the podcast. <laughs> easy to say that's right she think the s sound is probably is pretty hard for kids yeah probably but if she says bay we know what she really means that's right yeah yeah so that's that's the first one that'll be updated i'll get a picture from jess and a little blurb and that'll be done deal cool all right 
David wrote into the podcast uh, email and said, since Inyash is, seems to be in a very similar place to me a few years ago, vis-a-vis news, fake news, and social media, um, that is to say we don't believe anything we read, etc. Since I managed to get out of this hole, I thought I'd share my winning strategy. Quite simply, I have a one-strike-you're-out policy when it comes to unfollowing slash unfriending people. If anyone shares anything which seems like they shouldn't have shared, I unfollow them. This includes fake news, news which is factually correct but so partisan that annoys me, and, well, anything that else that makes me wonder, why the hell am I seeing this? I actually know somebody else who does this, uh, or more or less. I think um, Matt Freeman and I were talking about our social media strategies. Yeah. And I don't think he has a necessarily one-strike policy, but he's working on curtailing his, his input. Yeah. Or maybe that was me who said something like that, and I'm projecting. So <laughs> uh, I, I, do. I, won't, I won't put words in Matt's mouth unless he wants to back it up. I do something similar. Like I, it's for me, it's not one strike. Like I'll give someone a few swings, but uh, yeah, I, I've I have got at least three fourths of my list is unf- unfollowed, and it, sure it does make things better, but I don't think it necessarily solves all of the problem about um uh, about what news you can believe. Yeah, that's true, and it's tough. Like on in the other hands too. I mean, I don't. I think maybe one strike might be too severe given the source. Like. If one time Neil deGrasse Tyson shares a quit, you know, he complains about how Thor's hammer is too heavy or something. I'm like, I, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to see what he posts or anymore. This is right? why I never followed him in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he, he's, uh, I, I might have mentioned this before, but he's finding that, like, some people find it annoying that he rips apart movies for how bad their science is. Yeah, but I mean, that's his thing. That is his thing. Yeah. And when he had uh, Andy Weir on his podcast, he... Um, he told Andy that I was really impressed with like how little criticism I had to draw with the science in your book. And he's like, you know what? When I revised it, and I, or maybe when I was writing it, I wrote it with you ripping it apart in mind. And I'm glad it passed. Cool. Um, so I mean, he made sure to double check all his stuff, which I think is pretty good. Quick side note. Uh, when I left Facebook, I still have an account, but I haven't posted in a couple of years. I think many people had done what you did to me, which is unfollow me because mm-hmm. I fairly rarely shared anything worth seeing. And the whole time Rachel was in New York, we would, instead of like sending each other pictures of cute animals and stuff, we'd post them to each other's walls, which shows up as activity that other people have to see. And they're like, I'm sick of seeing three fucking dogs a day from Steven. So bye. Cool. Um, so I don't think I've Who missed. Who could ever get sick of seeing three fucking dogs a day? That's a good point. God. Yeah. A monster. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. You don't Squ- want to be their friend anyway. Forget those people. I don't know if you want to do the second half of this or not. Yeah, sure. Uh, he says, it is amazing. My social media experience has become so much better since I started adopting this policy. Uh, give some examples, but the key to this was adopting a mindset of the follow button isn't an expression of love or appreciation for this person. It's a statement that I'm willing to give this person instant access to my life to say whatever they want. This is a privilege that I'm very judicious about giving out, and it is no shame to have it taken away. Uh, After I adopted this mindset, I unfollowed all the high school friends and distant relatives who were filling my Facebook feed with crap, and the level of stress in my life instantly dropped by half. Yeah, the, the, the internet seems like a way to get annoyed. Yeah, and it can be in a different number of, of varieties, right? It could be your one friend who keeps sharing MAGA memes or something. But, I mean, my mom's not even that old. She's not grandma-aged, but she's basically, you know, grandma on Facebook meme style that, you know, she'll share, like, whatever inspirational quote she came across or, like, mm-hmm. completed this survey, check, you know, what, what, whatever bullshit flower or something are you or whatever. So it's like, ah, it's boring. You know, I love you, mom, but I'll, you know, you know like you said, it's not like I, it's not like I don't like you. It's just, you know, I'm not going to let you bug me with this crap all the time so yeah they wrap up by saying that since then my list of people i follow has dropped to a tenth of what it was but my average utils per minute of facebook time has increased enormously which i think is doing facebook right yeah they also posted something but since jess isn't here we can't uh, address it yet but there was uh he, he wants to see our reaction to it because it was the best um 
reputation of universal basic income that they've ever come across. Ooh. So that sounds like fun. So I've got it still saved. We'll hit it next time. We'll hit it at some point. We'll do a it, UBI episode at some point for sure. Yeah, totally. All right. Because I'm not an economist. No. But I, we should totally do that. I mean, the biggest problem that I know of uh, with it right now is the fact that it's just not feasible. Considering how much it would cost, we don't have the way to pay for it. Is there? Uh, is it a ripping apart that is addresses something other than that? I didn't read it. It was a link. Oh, oh okay, um, okay. Yeah, so we haven't checked it out yet, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's my thing is I'm not an economist, but I'm a, I am a socialist libtard. So if someone says, hey, give everyone free money, then I'm all for it. Yeah, but um, you, you can still do math, right? Yeah, but <laughs> like it's – I don't know. It's one of those things that there's arguments about, you know, this this does seem like the kind of thing that would actually boon the economy. Mm. Um, you know, I'm, again, not an economist, but my understanding is that if you're working at McDonald's making about $1,000 a month right now and then Andrew Yang wants to come on and give everyone $1,000 a month – well, then McDonald's is gonna have to up their up their their wages to keep you on board because you could make as exactly as much money sitting on your ass at home. Right, but those wages same, come the extra wages come from somewhere. Yeah, probably from McDonald's. So they'll cut their profits down from seven billion to six billion next year or something, right? Uh, um, more likely, they're gonna increase the prices. The you know the profits might go pe- down, but people could afford it too. So you know if you if you if you're I mean, can people afford it if they're only making a thousand a month? But if they're if they're suddenly making twice what they're making, if they're making if they're making a thousand before UBI, okay. then they're, then suddenly they're making two thousand a month. Yeah. Then yeah, they can afford another ninety nine cents or whatever per bread piece of McDonald's. Yeah. That said, I had a McGriddle on the way over, and it was amazing. So I don't eat that much fast food, but I was craving it. <laughs> Just quick warning to all our listeners: don't eat any McDonald's. <laughs> Don't listen to Inyash. <laughs> we have we have fairly decent health and safety food standards here in the United States. Oh, it's so. not the health and safety. It's not the safety part that I'm worried about. It's it's the the just the the health part. Yes, I yeah. think this is my general. I thing. guess like once a month or something. That's that's basically the the rate at which I eat it. If that, I mean, so like the whole thing with fast food phobia. This is my skeptoid adjacent rant. That like, I mean, there have been people who have done um, McDonald's only diets and lost weight. The right. idea is just to eat in proportions that don't make you sick. Like that shockumentary with um, Morgan Spurlock, Supersize Me. Yeah. He wasn't, first of all, he had a pre-existing condition that made him get sick and have to quit partway through. That was his liver issue that he, he disclosed up front. Oh, okay. um, And so if you're eating a, a diet that's rich in whatever, um, I'm guessing fats and salts or whatever, mm-hmm. um, it would make, be rough on his already damaged liver. But the other thing is that the average person doesn't, so part of the the gimmick of the show was that if some if they offered do you want to supersize that which I don't think McDonald's even does anymore, um, uh, I haven't heard of a supersize. No, you're right. I haven't heard them. Um, well, I haven't been to McDonald's in a long time, but I've been to some other restaurants and they don't ask that anymore. I don't think it's a thing. Mm. I think maybe this documentary did that, which cool, whatever. But the thing was when if they said do you want to supersize that, he would have to say yes and you'd have to try and eat it all, which is not the experience of your average eater, right? right. You usually stop eating when or shortly after you feel full. Yeah. So you're you're not sitting there gorging yourself, throwing up, and then eating more. Well, like, I, the, I mean, the main problem I have, problem, the main concern I have, I guess, with uh, fast foods and those sorts of foods is that they seem to be optimized to not make you feel full until you've had too many calories. Like you don't, you get a 700 calorie burger or something, and it doesn't feel like you've had that much food. And it just always seems to be that if you eat until you're full, you will overeat at those places. That's probably fair. I mean, I, I typically don't, like, I'll get one thing and drive off, so I'm not hanging out and then, you know, going back for more or something. Yeah, but if you um, drive off and you're hungry, next time you'll get two of the thing, right? And never, two of the thing is more calories than you should have. That's that's a reasonable concern, but from my, from my own experience, I, I never do that. I'm, I always know that, like, if I don't feel full 10 minutes after eating it, I will 30 minutes later. Hmm. The other main thing about fast food, or 
restaurants in general is um, the uh, portion sizes of beverages. Oh, yeah. I never get sodas. Um, I drink soda very rarely, and I'll never get a large soda McDonald's that's like, what, a liter? Uh, so I'm not going to suck down a liter of Mountain Dew or, or whatever they have uh, to, you know, because that, that's going to be more calories than your Big Mac and your fries, right? Yeah. Sugar so, water is really cheap, and they make a decent profit off it. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. It's like 17 cents a cup or something on their end. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's, oh, all right, last thing on UBI, that just to prime us for our conversation on it later, that one thing that I like about um, raising minimum wage and laws that do that is that since UBI is more of a pie-in-the-sky goal, raising minimum wage is a step towards that. Okay. You know, so like, yes, there's other economic issues with just that that aspect to make poor people less uh, poor, mm-hmm. but it, it it's a it's a step in the right direction. Okay. And I don't know if it's a step straight towards the right direction, but it seems to be a, a positive step. But again, not an economist, so maybe we'll have one of those on when we do this. We might as well. Yeah. We know some people that know some econ stuff. We do. All right. All righty. Uh, let's go on to Pearl Geek. This is from the subreddit. This is from the subreddit, yes. Pearl Geek says, There was some talk about how you should enjoy life at a young age rather than optimizing for a good life when you're older since you're not that healthy, etc. anymore. I'm not sure I necessarily said don't optimize for when you're older because you're always going to get older. So it's not a bad idea to optimize for it. But I might have said something like that. We were like, kind of like, we were kind of saying like, man, it seems so weird to just work constantly and be tired all the time when you're young just so that when you're old, you can be tired from being old but not having to work. Yeah. And like the, the thing is like you, you know, traveling is harder because, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's harder to carry a big backpack or go hiking or whatever it is you like can do while younger. And is, um, does, isn't it just me or our emotions muted a bit the older you get i think it depends on the person okay it's definitely been true with me but yeah. i'm hoping that turns around a bit at some point so. well i mean on the one hand it it's it was good when i was you know in the the middle part of of the late part of being young because early young the emotions were fucking out of control i did the that was not a fun ride but uh now it's starting to almost get to the point where sometimes i'm like i think I kind of miss, you know, some of the more intensity of like 10 years ago. Yeah, I try to tune into that and make those happen when I can. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, can like, we... maybe we won't enjoy the traveling as much when we're old because we're like, yeah, yeah, seen could... this. That could be. Another part, too, maybe they feel it the same, but maybe it's just kind of like exercise. You know, like, if you've been through enough shit, then, like, oh, this is sucks. But it's, you know, right. back when, you know, my great when my grandma you know was was living through the the great depression and you know, literally sharing bath water in a house without electricity and that sort of stuff it's like oh yeah you know i i don't know insert insert minor tragedy here it's like yeah i i, I went through that shit when i was 10 like you <laughs> it's know not as bad as going uphill both ways to work, school in the snow that's right and it's not as good as that one weekend with that one girl <laughs> speaking of salient emotions can we sidebar really quick sure I mean, try and stop me. Um, <laughs> I finished Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, my God. No, no, We're sidebarring for a video game? This is an important video game because it ties into emotions. All right. I, I've complained a little bit about the gameplay. It's still kind of clunky. Yeah. But they did a great job. And I'm not going to spoil anything. I mean, not really. Uh, they did a great job making you care about all the characters. And so if you played the first one, you know that you don't start with the full gang from the first game. So you know that they're not all going to make it, probably. Okay. Um, or at least they're not all around. And, uh, man, at the end, there's, you know... You get this kind of classic, uh, well, classic from the genre of like the redemption arc for the character. Mm-hmm. You know, like I used to be this kind of rough and tough, fuck you attitude outlaw. Like they get perspective and actually have things to care about or like want to do better. Mm-hmm. So that that really came through really well. Huh. And speaking of salient emotions, man, any game that could make me cry at the death of a virtual horse yeah. did something right. Nice. It was so touching. Aww. When I was telling Rachel about it, because I, you know, I, I went off, finished it for like three hours. 
and then I was telling her about it. I couldn't even tell her the part about the horse, like, because I, I was right after, and it was still really fresh. Yeah. But like, since I, I I suspected the end was coming, the end of the game, and since this character is not in the first game, which takes place later, um, oh. I assumed he wasn't going to make it. Okay. And that's not a spoiler because that's just history if you've seen the series. And he might, you don't know. But anyway, in any case, I'm feeding my horse. Like, you've got like all kinds of foods and stuff for if you want that like some are like good you know for whatever but i'm giving it like sugar cubes and stuff and i'm like you know i hope you know be, be happy and Aww. you really develop a relationship with the horses that does a good job at that mm-hmm. and hit me right in the feels man so where were we oh yes old people have fun and emotions was the point that pure geek was making oh yeah um or it, per, per, pearl geek excuse me it turns out continuing the the um post or the comment it turns out that young people have a tendency to underestimate how much they will both enjoy life and cling to life when they are older I currently have trouble finding sources for that, but this at least touches on the subject, and there's a link. Also, being old can be a surprisingly long time span. (laughs) For me, the limit of old was our German historic retirement age of 65, but many people live to be 80 or even longer, so 25 plus years of being old. So, I'm officially accusing Ineosh and Steven of unscientifically unsound ageism. <laughs> With a smiley face. Yes. Um, so, I did reply to that one. And A, I found that super um, comforting. Mm. Um, if it turns out that, that research supports that old people are happier than I suspected, that's great news because I might be an old person someday. I've heard um, that old people are fairly happy, most of them. Yeah, that's good. I mean, um, you don't have all the stress of life crushing down on you anymore. Yeah, certainly once you're retired and if you're doing okay. Mm. Um yeah, there's there's the other benefit too that just like you can do what you want with your life. Yeah, and I had something for this. Um, I do, I do have to say that I am in general terrified of the whole aging process. And being as I'm like kind of the oldest amongst my friends, with one exception, uh, well, either the oldest or everyone else is on par with me, right? Again, with with one exception, it it feels it feels weird, and I'm feeling my age a lot, and I do not like it at all <laughs> and uh maybe you'll hate it less when you're older yeah it's maybe. hard to say maybe it's get, like from my limited perspective i've i've had like body mechanic related issues for like 15 years and at a point you kind of just get used to it yeah and like in that sense it stops sucking like it's just like all right well i mean i you know it's like i couldn't jump three feet in the air before and like you know yeah, or, yeah. so like if you couldn't if you can never jump three feet then like not being able to doesn't really matter so like if you can't do something that you could have done 15 years ago after a while, it's just like, yeah, that's just not something I, my body does anymore. I just, I hate the whole getting infirm and not being able to do stuff. And like everyone gets, I hate to say this, but uglier, you know, and it just, everything about it sucks. There's, I guess there's some good parts of it, but God. <laughs> well, I think the good parts are are like, other than, I mean, I imagine that when you stop being attractive, whenever you get old enough to like, you know, not be super sexually attractive you're also probably not super sexually like active mm-hmm. you know actually old people sex happens but it's <laughs> it's not i i mean that in the sense that my my fiance works she's worked in geriatric social work for like the last what five years she's always walking in an old people boning luckily no but okay. it does happen like stds can be rampant in nursing homes mm-hmm. because these crazy old people are banging yeah um and they're so, like i don't care i'm gonna die soon anyway basically yeah. um or maybe they just need free condoms i don't know how it works but hmm. uh-huh. any in any case uh i think that I, I don't know. I imagine like the lack of like sexual appeal will probably bug you less than you think. But I'm also still holding out for the fact that we probably won't get old. So I'm hoping. Fingers crossed. Yeah. I guess I'm less the. I was much more hopeful of that when I was younger, and the older I get, the more I'm like, oh god, it's not going to happen in time, is it? I think that's. Uh, I wonder if Ray Kurzweil keep that keeps up at night because he keeps moving back when the singularity is going to happen because he keeps missing the deadline. Yeah. I think 
I don't know. I mean, we've got decades before this becomes a real thing, right? I mean, my main concern is dying. And yes, you can be old for a very long time. I think I saw today on Reddit that the oldest person alive right now that they know of is 116 years old. But granted, the last 50 years of that must have, well, last 35 years of that must have sucked. Well, well maybe been, the last 20. After being 96? I don't, I don't know. know. In any case, some, some amount of it is just I mean, increasing. I've seen some st- pretty spry 90-year-olds. It's true. Yeah, I mean, my great-grandpa, he lived until his mid-late 90s, and, I mean, we'd go visit their place in the summers, and he'd be, like, on his roof cleaning gutters and shit in his late 80s, but I wish he wouldn't, because we were there and we could do it. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, people people do stuff. I think it's just, like, you know, you, you know that your life's going to be constrained in some ways, right? So, mm-hmm. But, at the very least, apparently, people are happier than we suspect, so we'll, we'll take some solace in that. Kind of like it would suck to become paralyzed, but, like, mm-hmm. I know, because I've seen this touted over and over, that people who become paralyzed return to their base level of happiness after a few months, so... It's weird, too, because I was, like, I, when I was young, I was kind of, I was never rebellious, but I always, like, wanted to be rebe- rebellious, I guess. You were a bit but, rebellious. You left the religion. Oh, not, not when you were really young, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I bought into the whole, you know, don't trust anyone over 30 thing, and now I am over 30. And you're like, listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and it just, it's, I see, I don't know. I, n- I never thought I would be this old. I used to really hate old white men because they ruined everything. And I'm like, I'm That's basically an old white man now. <laughs> I guess I've ruined everything. That sounds racist. No, Okay, well, yeah. I mean, you, you can say that this group of people was historically responsible for a lot of problems but just because you happen to fit those demographics that's just straight up profiling it is and i will i will say that i was at that age the race slash ageist and uh didn't think it was a problem so now you gotta get over it i guess so yeah i mean you can do some transracialism and trans age or whatever trans ageism stuff which i think is more ridiculous than trans age or trans trans uh racialism, racism. yeah like trans- i think racialism. you could be transracial i'm not sure how you'd be trans age though there was somebody because I, yeah the, i remember seeing yeah the the uh what's her name uh blanking on it the, the very bad wizard person's stepmom okay she's one of the intellectual dark web people yeah and she keeps bringing up this example of the person just i think this person's trolling because they want to just you yeah. know make a fuss but they want to like change their age i think they're like in their 50s and they want to change it to like i'm 35 now yeah which me i'm like cool no harm done you're gonna retire when you're 80 like <laughs> fuck you um sorry we only let people retire when they're 67 you know yeah. um but I, I think that uh, one's just that one's harder though because there was a day you were born and we can measure how many days it's been since then you know yeah yeah that's fair but what if you feel a certain age i you know i, I some people do mature much later than others i've been an old man for 10 years see right so, you you like, are trans ageist in the other direction yeah but i'll, I'll i'm not going to change that on paper because right. there's there's perks to being certain ages and you know whatever well, there's also perks to being older yeah, if I had a money to retire on, I could change my age to whatever age I could collect my non-existent pension at. So, <laughs> right. in any case, Let's it's, it's it's good to hear that old people are are you know I never thought that they were miserable, but there is there's the concern that like oh man I'm not gonna be able to do all the stuff I like. But apparently, like the you know like the paralysis thing that turns out to be less of a concern than I thought it was, and that's super reassuring to me. So, yeah. All right, we've got J Michael two four nine seven on here on one of the subreddit comments. I think this was on yeah, it was one a couple episodes ago. Mm-hmm. They had a a long post with a bunch of sections, but we pulled one out here on uh, freemium profits. And he says, uh, again, if or they say again, if you if you aren't the customer, you're the product. PGO is tracking your location habits. Pokemon and, Go. Oh, Pokemon Go. Thank you. Pokemon Go is tracking your location habits and monetizing that data. And they're in that, and they they are Niantic slash Google powered after all. Um, with the association, no one no 
really bro, we're really not tracking you when you tell us not to, et cetera, for the for reals this time. That whole thing of like, oh, we're not tracking you. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. And the microtransactions are just a nice, easy bonus. Yeah, I know. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a freemium game. I know exactly what I'm in for. I um, hadn't like considered some, that. Does Google really need more ways to track us, though? I already tell them everywhere I'm going because <laughs> I need to know how to get there. I think there's that. And the other thing with Pokemon Go that monetizes it without you paying for anything is that Pokemon Pokestops are yeah. um, not not necessarily not necessarily even most of them, but a lot of them are in businesses. Mm-hmm. Like every Starbucks actually a few months after launch is now Pokestop. So is every Sprint store. Yeah, and um, they pay for that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that that's a thing that happens. It'll draw you to that location. And hey, while you walked all the way over here for uh, a Pokestop, aren't you thirsty? Why don't you swing in for a Starbucks? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, these things happen. I I can't remember what context this was brought up in, but I think this is just an understood cause of, or an understood effect of the game. Like, there are other games. The only other mobile game that I play that has anything like a monetizing aspect is, um, what's it called? Uh, Clash of Clans. And that one, there's there's no tracking because your location doesn't matter, but it, it, it heavily intensifies you to spend real money to get in-game currency to speed up building and stuff. Yeah. Which, if you play it right, you never have to do. So, I just, I've been playing But you'll it. always lose against people that do do that. This one doesn't actually do that, luckily. It's oh. not quite as bad as some of those cool new AAA games where you can pay for an instant win card, like looking at you, Star Wars Battlefront 2. Hmm. No, I mean, so other people can, can basically get their bases leveled up faster than you, mm-hmm. but you're competing against people at your same level all the time. Oh, okay. And that also increases their level. So, it's not yeah. like... They don't get an unfair advantage other than being able to skip t- spending five years to build their base and they can do it in two. Okay. Yeah. Or right away if they're fucking millionaires. Right. So this was a, a comment that came in a maybe a month or two ago on episode 56, which is the one that we, where we had um, our guest Vivian on to try and explain to me what like privilege was and offense and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, Bob wrote in saying that, in a sense, I'm glad Vivian expressed her views because I always thought that, quote, privilege, unquote, narrative is cloaked in racism and perpetuates everything wrong with it oh excuse me is cloaked in racism and perpetuates the very thing it purports to seek to to solve i feel more secure in my view than ever the term punching up betrays a mentality here i'm a white guy you're a black guy well of course i'm above you yuck Mm. um this view is despicable and minimizes people into little more than members of a tribe this wasn't rational it was nonsense um i agree with most of that i will say that the 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 phrase punching up, I think it doesn't necessarily mean I'm above you, you're below me. It's that society has me above you and uh, therefore you below me. Mm. And so it, it's it's not necessarily like a, I'm racist and I'm above you. It's that like, because I'm in this class and that classism is real. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think, I hope I didn't, none of us came off denying anything like that. And it sucks. And it's like, I mean, obviously that's a stupid thing for me to say. So it's, the the problem isn't that like this isn't real or this is a bad attitude to have this is that's that's socioeconomics right and they're they're too often uh in today's day and age hopefully this will get better in the future derived along racial lines which is insane and so people can uh i think the slippery slope to fall into is is to say that like this is every person's fault or Mm -hmm. this is this makes every person a victim Mm -hmm. right i was listening to npr about a month ago or so and they were talking about taylor swift and it it was something along the lines of kind of not attacking her not like ripping into her in the whole john stewart eviscerates way but they were like really going at her for you know being this white lady and not using her privilege correctly to help out the minorities and benefiting from the system and all that and i was like wow man they are hating on taylor swift 
And then someone mentioned, yeah, but she's done good things for the causes of women. And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. She's, you know, as a woman, very empowering for women and everything. I was like, damn, that was some fast backtracking. And it was it was just interesting to see, you know, the the quick switch as, as to whether she was the oppressor or the oppressed class and just changed on which lens they were using. And it was... It sort of shows the fragility of that whole stupid game. Yeah. And also, you know... She's fucking Taylor Swift. Maybe just judge her as a human as opposed to a member of, you know, the whites or a member of the women's. Or the riches or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't know what her early life was like. Maybe consider that. I know that right now her life is pretty good because she's super rich and pretty famous. Not to say rich people don't have problems, but... Right. But they, 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 have, they ways... have problems that poor people would love to have. Yes. Yeah. They have ways to deal with their problems. Yeah. They can <laughs> afford therapy. Yeah. And they can afford time off to take it. I think... uh it's interesting, like, this is, might have been an example I brought up during that episode where, like, you know, if somebody I knew who got, like, beat up or something while somebody called them racial slurs, I'm not going to pause to ask, like, oh, well, hold on, what can I hold a brown bag to you, see if you're passing white or not? Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's disgusting. That's madness, right? Mm-hmm. But it's fun to see people change lenses depending on whether or not they're playing identity politics or tribism or tribalism or whatever, right? Yeah. I have a... a... A friend of a friend, an acquaintance, I guess, who often cosplays uh, like Jasmine and other people from Arabic areas. And she is, I believe, oh crap, Syrian? I want to say Syrian, maybe Lebanese. No, I think she's Lebanese. Uh, but yeah, they like rip into her for because she's fairly light skinned. Into how dare you this cultural appropriation oh, yeah, taking you, you those costumes on? Oh, did I? Um, and then she's like, bitch, I was born born in the middle east yeah yeah my and and isn't that weird like uh-huh. i mean i didn't learn about the term brown bagging until what a few years or a few months ago what is brown bagging that's where you take a brown oh, the, the, paper bag the, okay right and, yeah, yeah. and see and hold it up to them and see if they are if they're darker or lighter than the brown bag yeah um which i guess depending on the bag tells whether or not they're passing white or not and that's like a lot of what like the same card you see pulled out, which is bizarre because this is the same the same brown bag that the that that racists will use to determine whether or not you deserve inclusion in our special group. Which mm. it's it's weird. I mean, like kind of like distant third person perspective on this is like hist- history is always just reactions from the extreme of how it was a couple decades ago, right? Yeah. So like we're we're in a pendulum swing, and I'm pretty sure we're at like near the top of the swing where like it's not going to get much. It might get a little weirder, but it's not going to get. This isn't the stasis that the it can stay at. ultra prudish right now. It's really weird. And in some ways not. You know, it's weird. But yeah, I think I think it's going it's, to... It'll swing back and do what... It, you know, and obviously it's not a clean metaphor because there's lots of pendulums, I'm sure, if we're going to totally torture it. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you want to mention this or not, but you had somebody do Padma and Parvati Patil for the Methods yeah, of Rationality yeah. podcast. Do you want to talk about this? Oh, uh, have I mentioned it before? No, I just didn't know. I was going to mention it, but I didn't know if you wanted to Oh yeah, go for it. it. I think it was... You know, because the show was done in, in segments as it got caught up with the book, and then you do like side stories or other or other short fiction. Um, somebody wrote in and was like complaining that the person who did Padma and Parvati Patil, when they did their attribution, didn't have a brown person sounding name and uh, did it with an American accent. Yeah. And they were like, that's super offensive or something and no well what um, it was so i mean to to set up um when i did the podcast originally i was doing basically all the voices certainly all these small parts because there's over a hundred small parts and i don't know that many people at a level where i can just ask them to do the parts right uh and eventually i got enough fans that people just start sending in lines so now every part i think is done by uh different people with a few exceptions but to keep all these characters separate for me I started doing them like in different funny accents and voices and stuff. 
I had like the debonair English guy. I had um, I had one like old Western cowboy drawl guy. Was I, that Ron? <laughs> no, no, no. That was not. Ron was the surfer dude. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and for Seamus, I had a terrible Irish accent, which was kind of like a mashup of the Lucky Charms guy <laughs> and Groundmaster Willie from The Simpsons, which is literally what I based the accent on because those were the only two people I knew who, uh, turns out, those are two different countries anyway. But at the time, I was like, Scottish, Irish, same accent, right? I'm just kind of a mashup of the two of them. And anyways, that th- there was a lot of like funny accents and just goofing around playing with the thing so I could, uh, so I could keep them separate in my head. And... Eventually, like, I started getting a few other parts, specifically the female parts. I just could not do female voices. You couldn't do 20 of them. At yeah, that too. Yeah, exactly. That was the thing is during the spew arc, there's, what, eight main women or something? Yeah. So good luck doing eight convincingly separate voices, Inyash. Yeah, so I got, uh, I, I tapped, like, a whole bunch of friends. And since I was doing, like, silly voices and shit, then uh, they were playing along with that too. And this uh, this one girl was like, oh, yeah, Pavardi Patel. I would love to do them. And she, like, went on YouTube and tried to do, you know, more or less the best accent she could, but it's still sort of a humor piece, right? So she was just having fun with it. And uh, and it wasn't until, I don't know, the series was almost over when I got this uh, feedback that someone said, you know, I was listening to Harry Potter Methods of Rationality. I was having such a great time. I was loving all of this, identifying with Harry. And then I hear this accent come on and my heart just drops because it's the same accent that people in high school would always torment me with and and you're like oh and you know i was like oh fuck and i just felt awful so okay that's that's i i went and yeah got that changed as quickly as i could after that i didn't have the whole story i thought that it was just some you know stereotypically white social justice warrior complaining that you're doing this on behalf of other people oh no if this was somebody and they were they were saying like man this was the shit that people mocked me with like that or even if it was like somebody you know what i'm getting at is it came from a place of like genuine like personal yeah uh notice yeah. rather than like if oh. it was just like someone saying oh that's culturally insensitive i would have been like whatever bite me see that's what i thought you're capitulating to no no okay so that's different yeah. all right so that, that that makes it better i forget how we got on that um, uh because we were talking about cultural appropriation that's right yeah oh and the brown bagging yeah whatever yeah, yeah. so i i brought that up because i told somebody that story and i gave them my wrong version of it that it was just somebody who wrote in but that it didn't actually matter what they said was like well yeah why didn't he bring an indian person on to do it I and i was like because he didn't know any indian women yeah. and what is he going to do like if somebody writes in and gives them a voice i don't know if you knew this person irl or not but if they did like what are you gonna do like ask them for their 23 and me right like or you know what what if they falsified those documents or just or if they lied to you like you know how much how much of this background check is really due on you for doing a free podcast i mean um, it's also made doing made making the podcast harder cuz now i always either try to get someone of the nationality described or or ethnicity described or uh just change the accent like uh kokomo in the crystal society is described as having a kenyan accent and it's like I like reading it because I can hear it in my head. I, it sounds kind of like, I don't know, Trevor Noah-ish. I don't think he's from Kenya because I, I, I don't actually, I can't tell the difference between all the accents. But I, I, I kind of hear it, you know, like the, the you kind of know the uh, yeah, totally. Eastern Af- African accent. And uh, I don't know anyone like that. So I was like, you know what, just just do straight American accent because I, I don't want, I don't want to ask someone to do a Kenyan accent and get it wrong and, and have that sort of thing happen again. So yeah, I've, I've had to look a lot harder for people. And if I can't find someone, then I just like, you know, 
don't don't do an accent and it's kind of a bummer but which sucks because it's also kind of like erasure too right yeah and yeah. so it, it makes it makes characters that were ethnic white on on i mean or sounding white anyway yeah i mean on, on the other side of that sounding though, mid-american like, sorry when you're there's lots of flavors of white <laughs> when you're doing it on a budget of zero dollars like you can't really afford to do casting calls right so it just kind of turns into what it is i had something on accents and stuff damn it slip my mind anyway. i miss accents because accents were always fun and i don't even think for the most part they're like making fun of people that much but comedians almost always do accents of some kind you know and, and you it can, just makes a set better and you can do it with in a way that's not like mean-spirited yeah. you know if you're talking about some guy from lollybrock in scotland you can do it with an accent <laughs> exactly but it doesn't you know that that i wasn't saying something disparaging or making a, a racist joke or whatever right yeah yeah it's but we'll see where things shake out um, but having heard that it came from an actual person's place of like, and this kind of actually hit me, then that, that, that actually changes my whole perspective on it. So. Yeah. I didn't want anyone to have their methods of rationality experience ruined by something like that. Totally. That's awesome. Let's see. Oh yeah. Because we were talking about the whole episode with Vivian. Yeah. Which, yeah, it was learning experience. I mean, it was a conversation that I had enjoyed. I mean, I thought it was of. a good episode. We had a lot of feedback. People like, what the hell was this? And there were a few people like, you know what? I, I don't want to be involved with this uh, right someone thought that like if they're replacing our third host and i'm leaving and i'm taking my patreon money with me which uh, was... I, I think it was wasn't it one of the people that did some of our music yes yeah yeah. that's right yeah like we'd rather not have our music associated with us um, i explained you know this is we cover a lot of topics on this and we'd like to hear from the people that actually hold these positions it's not that we endorse them but you know everyone gets to say what they want to say and not be censored yeah if they're gonna be cool about it most people can yeah and it's sense. it's important to get all the perspectives and they're like oh okay yeah that's cool no i'm totally with you i was like cool rock on i'm glad we're seeing the same thing but yeah i wouldn't want that to be a constant feature you know it was an interesting episode to have yeah i couldn't do that every two weeks moving on so we've... yeah this was on the one that we talked about this is another one from david via email we did that one on everything fitting into four categories if you squint hard enough mm-hmm. and uh he brought in that um uh helen fisher um the i know her from her episode on neil degrasse tyson's podcast and she does like a lot like love science like what's actually going on there um the different you know phases of love and neurochemically what's going on there oh Um, love science i thought you were saying she loves science oh who doesn't (laughs) yeah um (laughs) yes no the science of love okay so he has he says he he thinks he has an answer to why everyone seems to fit into four broad categories it's because the most most of personality, human personality, is governed by four neurotransmitters: dopamine, serotonin, testosterone, and estrogen. This research mostly comes from Dr. Helen Fisher, and he links to a talk that she gave, which we can put in the comments. Um, the Reason Foundation's annual donor weekend. To make a long story very short, her work is the best I found to explain the four bucket thing, even though she insists that conceptualizing them as buckets is a mistake. The Hogwarts houses, the Ninja Turtles, the colonial groups from Albion Seed, reproductive strategies. Even the four conspiracies from Brennan's story, competitive, cooperative, bardic, and Bayesian, um, those are the short stories and the sequences. It also pays a lot of rent in anticipated experience. She's used survey data to predict brain scan results from the prevalence of, for the prevalence of these neurotransmitters and vice versa. Unlike, say, the Myers-Briggs, where those predict basically what's your uh, Myers-Briggs, uh, whatever personality trait. She's also making money for it with Match.com which I think she helped found, or at least they were. she was heavily consulted. I remember that from Tyson's podcast a few years ago, if the market test holds any weight with you. So anyway, hope you found this interesting. I um, do find that interesting. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I would want to read more about it because again, the I, I 
I'm kind of suspicious of anything falling, falling into four easy categories like that. One of the parables from that uh, thought ex- from that thought experiment slash exploration was that it's not always neat four buckets. Yeah. Um, there was a PS here that. But that I, is that is interesting. I, I'm interested in hearing more about that. And I'll totally listen to her her talk at least. Yeah, me too. P.S. I would guess that rationalists are high in testosterone. Do you happen to know the sex ratios of children pr- produced by two rationalists? <laughs> um, I'd like to register an advanced prediction that it preskews prev- uh, pretty strongly male. Um, Sixty to seventy-five percent. He's guessing. Uh, so that's sex ratios of the children produced by two rationalists, not how many people are rationalists. What? Do high testosterone people have boys more often? I didn't think so, but maybe they do. I I'm, assumed that it was always just a 50-50 shot. I'm not a doctor. Maybe or it is. close to 50-50, you know? Yeah. Certainly yeah. nothing like 60 to 75%. Well, unless unless testosterone plays a big part, and if rationalists tend to have higher testosterone... I mean, those are two assumptions that we both have no data on you and me personally i mean maybe right, someone totally. does yeah yeah and we also don't know the the ratios there 60 to 75 though that's intense that'd be interesting no but that that is cool and i i hope to read some more about it at some point when i have time yeah i won't check that out i will put that in the notes and and ping you again when i find the link and to post it so um anyway thanks david for that one yeah oh this was a really quick one just from a listener who recently started listening to the show and then binged it all, which is great, from uh, Graham. And uh, they listened to uh, Inuyasha's reading of uh, Metropolitan Man and Methods of Rationality. When we did the signaling episode way back with... It would have been signaling without Robin Hanson. It was one of the ones before that where we just talked about signaling. Okay. When Katrina mentioned uh, mimicry, where harmless species might imitate a venomous one so that predators will avoid it, like, uh, like some flies and snakes do Inesh pointed out that this seemed like cheating and nobody mentioned that professor quirrell had taught us one th- about one thing cheating is what losers call technique <laughs> and be worthy of many quirrell points when successfully executed right. so yes good catch and thanks for noticing that one graham all right next one's on you uh desmond on a comment on the cyber christianity episode this one actually came from our website the conspiracy.com rather than uh the reddit says this episode had me scared for a good while not at the content of the discussion but at who i could have been I was raised Mormon and didn't break into atheism until six months into a two-year Mormon mission trip. Even then, it was a slow process. Two steps forward, one step back. That said, if my slightly younger self had heard about cyber-Christianity, I think there's a very good chance I would have bought into it as an excuse to hold on to my beliefs. I like to imagine that I would have eventually shrugged it off, but this could have delayed my deconversion by months or even years. Worse, I'm cringing because I know I would have shared this idea with all my friends as something I believed in and something they should believe in too. I wonder what it says that a person can be exposed to the same ideas, but the order in which they are exposed to the ideas can send them down different paths. Which is, yeah. I'm curious to hear about whether young Inyash might have fallen into this trap too. Um... No. I was gonna. Uh, damn it! I was just finishing a drink of water. I was gonna render a prediction that the answer would be no. But can I guess okay. why? Sure. Because it would have been a drastic enough departure from the religion that you were taught that it wouldn't have been an excusable substitute. Like, you, you this wouldn't be something that you can kind of slide in and not go to hell for. You still would have gone to hell if you were still a Jehovah's Witness when you were exposed to this, right? Uh, well, wait, I mean, not hell, probably but, according to yeah. official dogma. But if I bought it, then I would be like substituting this in for the belief anyway, right? I always sort of saw this as. I think what um, what Desmond was concerned about as like a kind of like um, the, the the a reason to stay in the in the the faith the faith yeah to yeah, stay in the society the the, the faith society like as a if whole. I bought into it I don't think I'd be worried about being sent to hell for being bought into it I you know I'd be like oh so everyone is secretly actually going to get you know taken out of the matrix and I will be among them because and they don't believe it right now but they're still gonna get 
they're still going to get taken out of the Matrix. So that's awesome. I sort of always just saw the cyber Christianity thing once I learned about it as just like kind of more of that slippery apologetics bullshit where mm-hmm. it's like, say this when you're talking to somebody who's arguing with you, but then go off and do whatever you want and you know pretend oh. and just kind of pretend. Okay. If someone really bought into this as their actual religion, that, that would... Well, be... I mean, most of religion is, you know, just say this stuff and then go off and be a community together. I don't know. Yeah, but but the the important part is that you're saying the same stuff as the rest of your community. Yeah. And then when you're on the debate stage with Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, you'll make other noises and then go back off to your congregation and make those appropriate noises. So like you'll go oh, to the right. stage and be like, well, of course God's not like real. He's not standing on a cloud. He's he's in our hearts. He's he's a manifestation of all the good that's in the world. Yeah. Then you go right back to your pew on Sunday or to the whatever the stand where you talk to people and mm-hmm. say, of course God's real. He really cares about you. Yeah. Um, which is not what you'll say when being challenged. I sort of thought this was just sort of another bait and switch position gotcha um which uh, it might be by some people but maybe I that's think not that'd the point. be a really weird bait and switch i, I don't think it would be very effective it, it seems to me more as the sort of thing you would tell yourself if you wanted to stay in despite all the evidence you saw i doubt someone would try to use it as a bait and switch sort of thing the much more common bait and switch would be something like yeah god is just the feeling of love that we feel for all humanity gotcha yeah that's fair so why wouldn't what what wouldn't why wouldn't you have bought this as a teenager oh because uh my main gripe with god was that he was evil uh, that he, he, you know, for some reason hated the gays and wanted them all to die and had this abhorrent moral system, and this wouldn't have changed any of that. This doesn't make, I mean, just to be clear, that, that doesn't make God not real. That just makes him an asshole. <laughs> right. And but that is that is where I started, and that is what started me down the path. And there was, there was this would have not arrested that path. That's fair, yeah. Plus, I mean, that... That rebuke doesn't really land when you're also told that God loves you and loves everything infinitely, right? Yeah. And it's like, he loves me a lot, but he still, like, keeps hurting me and keeps torturing people and killing kids and, you know, wants gays to be tortured forever. Yeah. Who, who loves somebody enough to torture them for fucking ever? I know. That's yeah. some intense love, man. Yeah. I, I guess I just don't really understand the true meaning of love. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah, that's interesting. I think as a kid, I wouldn't have found this convincing either. I was never as religious as Inyash, but to my vague sense of religion, I don't know. I guess I saw The Matrix when it was new, and because I'm super young, that would have been like when I was early teen, maybe 11 or 10, 12-ish. Mm-hmm. It came out in 99. If someone had tried to sell me on the idea that like, no, look, and like, I, you know, if, the, if say Bostrom's paper had come out about, you know, simulation theory or something, I don't know. It's hard to say what, I can't really put together a mental model of my younger self that well. Um, I certainly don't find it the least bit compelling now, and I haven't actually. I the most I've looked into Bostrom's um, simulation argument is like the really short version. Mm-hmm. Um, he's actually, I think, the most recent guest on Sam Harris's podcast, which I haven't heard yet. So, mm-hmm. I will see if they go into simulation argument there. They don't. Um, they, he again gives the really short version. Uh, okay. Well, at the end of the day, it's not convincing to me. Right. And I think my thing is. Well, I mean, why is th- it convincing to you? Let me. Yeah. Let me. Let me explain. Because the the argument that they're very well maybe more simulations than there are real worlds or because there's one real world at the top right mm-hmm. and then it's just turtles the rest of the way down if that's the case i guess it's not that i don't necessarily buy into it it's that i don't think that changes anything i feel like i'm still in relation to other people and other minds and like whether or not um like if you're in the matrix which is a really easy way to distill this thought experiment mm-hmm. and you're being a dick to somebody you're still being a dick to somebody right the other person's a mind in a vat too yeah. it doesn't matter where their body is it just matters that you're being mean to them and you're impacting their mental states in a way that makes them less happy but that's not a refutation of the simulation argument you're no just no that, 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 that even if it was true i wouldn't change anything that, that's that's what i meant to clarify yeah so no. it's not that i i don't 
I don't have a solid refutation to, to his argument. What I do think is that it doesn't change anything for how I'll live my life. Okay. Um, so you just don't really care. Yeah. So right. like, it, and it's also not something that I could ever transform into like a religion that like, Oh, when we all get out or when all this changes or when they, you know, patch the, the really shitty uh, death bug that's in the here or something. Right. Yeah. I've got nothing like that. And it, uh, my current conviction in that theory isn't going to change any of those perspectives yet. So, okay. yeah. All right. Let's grab the oh, next wait, wait, one. Wait, wait. Uh, I want to do more dinner meals because apparently I didn't copy it into the document, which is weird. But I, I have did. it up right now. I did at the bottom, actually, because I, oh, I grabbed the one above it, too. Oh, okay. Um, oh, wait. No, I didn't. I grabbed another more dinner meal. On, that was on the atheism episode. So you do that one because that was on cyber Christianity. Yeah. Yes, it was. Okay. So on the same episode, um, more dinner mail on the subreddit says, I share Inyash's ability to easily be, to be easily sniped by these ideas. There's a part of me that's grasping for explanations, and this part seems to find there's somebody watching or something that created your world for a purpose, and they're watching you and judging your behavior to be really compelling. Probably because I'm a social primate. Timeless physics helped solve my issues with meaninglessness in a pointless, quote-unquote, cosmos. Yeah, in the far future, the universe will be a flat smear of cold hydrogen. But if you think of the universe as a timeless object, then past and future and now cease to have objective meaning. The moment when you lost some sleep to help talk a friend through a rough time? That moment is permanently embedded in the universe. It will always be there, right where you left it. It will always have happened. Nothing can take it from you. So what if the moment passes out of living memory? You did a good thing. You had a moment of connection. You mattered in that, in that moment. It's preserved in the causal history of the universal wave function, which is a more indelible substrate than diamond. Which, holy shit. That's great. Yeah, I think for me, that was basically just what I said, but more poetically put. Yeah. I'm kidding. I'm giving myself too much credit. <laughs> um, no, but I, I thought that was beautiful. That like, I think so, too. I thought it was very moving. When there's a beautiful moment, it is forever now part of reality. I did say something much to the same effect, but minus the the actual, like I guess, the convincing part of like this is actually part of the timeless physics universe. Mm -hmm. My thing was more just like it still matters because it was nice, which is a lot less, a lot more... Uh, hoity-toity and a lot less solid than this yeah i like i like the solidity of no i totally agree emails. and apparently other people did too yeah. um this, i think these are the only ever uh, gilded comments i've ever seen on our subreddit so or rather this is the only comment that i've seen gilded and it was gilded twice mm -hmm. so yeah that's awesome i think it's yeah it's just the idea that correct me if i'm wrong if my reading is the same as yours but i might have used this example or maybe i didn't but like if you're in if you're in Auschwitz, you're going to be killed next week, and you do a kindness for one of your your, your fellow prisoners, that doesn't go away when you're both killed next week. Yeah. It, well, more to the point, with timeless physics, it really doesn't go it away. It literally it's doesn't. a forever moment of beauty that's in the universe. Okay, I'm glad that solidity, solidity landed. Yeah. Um, like, to me, w when you first gave that gave that analogy, I was like, I it guess, does a week but later. they're both still dead, so yeah. whatever, no one knows or remembers or anything, but... The fact that, I don't know, there's something about it actually being there that makes a difference. That's I awesome. Mean, yeah. And that is actually... Like, I even visualize it as a bright color that's just almost trapped in sort of an, a clear amber thing. Just the, the act being a color in there. It, I, I know it's stupid visualization. It's not. It's I, great. Everyone has their own, but that's how I saw it. No, it's beautiful. I picture it more uh, like time on a... This is embedded in me from as a teenager watching Richard Dawkins' Christmas Day lectures where he had that cool, like, that big several meter long meter stick hmm. and a little beam of light moving across it. Hmm. I see it's kind of like little bright points where the beam was. Right. Yeah. And no, uh, to be clear, uh, Matt, this was a much more beautiful and articulate way of putting it and it landed harder. And I think that's great. Hmm. Um, I really liked that one too. So I'm glad it's on there. Yeah. I don't have anything else to, you know, this isn't, I don't have much of a conversation for that one other than saying, yeah. I think it's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. 
Yeah, man. Relating similarly to that, and another uh, back to another Martin email comment, but this was a child comment of another one. On our atheism episode, we had user uh, Calvin321 say that, I consider myself a rationalist theist. Is this necessarily a contradiction? I would think a Bayesian would consider, excuse me, I consider a Bayesian would only consider unlikely. I think you need to be careful to not prescribe too many mandatory positions to the rationalist label because that is one definition of fundamentalism. Uh, I have found many contrary opinions uh, have merit, like the anti-vax person Jerry Hammond, for instance. I don't know who that is or what they said that has merit, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's some gentle admonishment of like being sure that science is safe or something. I have no idea. It could be something that nice. Um, I kind of made hand gestures reading the first two sentences because it feels like wishy-washy apologetics. And then they go on to link to apologetics later on in the comment chain, Uh um, which I, so apologetics is, I I like how it sounds sorry in the name. It's the, the branch of like theistic defense Mm -hmm. where I don't know why they call it, I'm sure there's some great reason that's historical, but in any, in any case, it sounds like, sorry, um, but that's, We're that's apologizing for the fact that our God can't actually provide evidence. And it's, it's the same it, to me. It's that what I was talking about earlier with that, that, that wishy-washy bullshit where, and don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Calvin or anything. I think, you know, people do whatever they want, you know, and it, it sounds like you've got something that works for you and that's great. But my experience watching apologetic debates was they would say one thing and do another, and they would engage in a lot of, of really dishonest debate tactics, you know, straw manning, um, Oh, here we go. Apologetics from the Greek meaning speaking in one's defense. Yeah, all right, that's fair enough. Um, so yeah, this is this is in defense of, of theism, but there's this guy, what was his name? Oh, actually, it's the one that, that you mentioned, or that you, you put in a link to a video by, uh, um, or excuse me, Calvin puts, puts in a link to a video, Dr. William Lane Craig. Oh my god. Yeah, who I had seen debates from, and this was the guy, I remember there was like, he was on a, he did a debate with Sam Harris where Harris pointed out like, that a lot of the characteristics of, of religiosity, you take away like the religion aspect. If it's one person, it's straight psychosis. Mm-hmm. And in his opening statement where Harris made that remark, he, he went on, you know, he elaborated at length that like, I'm not saying religious people are psychotic. I'm not saying that there's, there's even a parallel uh, other than the fact that, you know, basically I think he used the example of like, if, if you're, if you're praying to, to God and you're talking to him every night and you hear him talk back to you, you're religious. If you're, if you're talking to Michael Jackson or or Elvis or somebody, you're you're crazy. And then you know Craig comes back and he's like, well, I certainly wouldn't think my esteemed colleagues here at the university hosting us are psychotic, um, which is exactly not what Harris said. So it's that weird, it's it's super dishonest debate tactics. Maybe he's got some things worth hearing, but I only saw him in the context of, of a debate. Not. I when I was big into atheism, I saw a bunch of things with him, and he's he's just typical typical apologist. I was trying to be generous, okay. um, but yeah, it. Only because I actually didn't know, but yeah, I mean, I I got the impression that he he didn't have. I mean, he he definitely didn't argue with integrity. Mm. It, like I said, I mean, this wasn't even as disingenuous as like misquoting somebody like from a book and then publishing an article about how you know you're you're a wrong quote or something. This was like he was right there. He just said it. In fact, I think Harris's rebuttal was like, I didn't say that my that our colleagues here were psychotic. I guess I'll let the YouTube video sort that out. <laughs> like this was recorded thirty seconds ago, so. In any case, um, uh, Martinimal replied to to that comment about um, would a Bayesian consider, you know, a Bayesian should only consider unlikely, not impossible, mm-hmm. and that don't prescribe too many uh, mandatory positions to the rationalist label because that's how you get fu- that's one definition of fundamentalism. I think we've talked a bit about maybe we'll talk about how that's not fundamentalism. I th- I, in in one sentence that I can think of right away, it's the difference is that like these aren't unchallengeable tenets of the faith. 
this isn't things you have to believe on insufficient evidence to get into the club. Um, this this is these are things that are more or less settled, but they're always and, open for discussion. Like rationalists tend to be anti-death, but if you find a deathist rationalist and they're arguing in good faith and they're not straw manning, well, they'll probably be a good conversationalist. You know what I mean? I, I hate to go down this track because we're just going back to the same old atheist uh, debates that we've are all supportive now, but it's just basic special pleading. No one ever says, I would only consider it highly unlikely that apples will start falling up into the sky tomorrow. It's there's some things that you're just like, yeah, that's not going to happen for all effect and purposes. It is zero probability that that was more than reply that I liked here. He says, I suppose we're all rational theists and that we all assign some non-zero probability to the possibility that the world or the universe or something was created by an agent rather than purely consequence of physical laws. <laughs> we were just talking about simulation hypothesis, right? But I wouldn't say I'm a theist because the apportion is because I apportion so little probability to mass to that hypothesis. So like that's the thing is like maybe this time when I drop my phone it'll go up, and is it logically impossible? No. Therefore, should I assign real probability to it? I don't want to break my phone. I right. El- so I'm not going to drop it. Eliezer has this post in the as sequences about the lottery where uh, he some people talk about like how the lottery at least like gives people some hope for a while, you know, which is one of the good things about it. And he said, okay, sure, but if you're being rational about things, you should appropriate you should portion out an amount of hope equal to your chances of winning which is physically impossible <laughs> because a human cannot devote less than one neuron to helping something right <laughs> and uh i feel the same way the chances of god are so close to zero that i cannot subdivide a single neuron into giving it that amount of probability so uh no no yeah i think i think i used the the example that i gave my old co-workers when somehow god came up like the first time we hung out and I thought about how I was going to answer because I didn't know what their stance was. And I had said I I put God in the same mental category that I put unicorns in. I I, have, I, I haven't seen one. I don't expect to see one. I'd be extremely surprised to see one. Um, God is probably actually less because seeing yeah, a unicorn w- say... wouldn't wouldn't blow my model of the universe out of the water. Right. But it's also this is kind of like a reverse apologetics point, and then a, an apologist can make a counter argument. But like, it's not clear what would even convince me. Um, I've, I've thought about this a bit and then stopped 10 years ago cause I got bored of atheism, but mm-hmm. like, Oh, well, what if somebody came down and they could fly and, you know, like, like Harris uses the example. It's like, what if, you know, Jesus landed on the white house lawn tomorrow and it's like, look, there he is. There's his magic powers. That's mm-hmm. all it would take. I don't know if Harris has considered that, like, what would be more likely that that's the returned son of the creator of the universe who has DNA and, you know, whatever, he's a son and yeah. not just like this, this, this thing, but it or and that the universe was created you know whatever ten thousand years ago and it's all a trick you know heredity dna is a is a myth but or whatever all that stuff that we thought we understood is all false Mm -hmm. or that this is aliens playing a trick on us Mm -hmm. or that we're in a simulation and they're like hey someone hacked god mode um someone found a really clever magician right (laughs) i've i i did hear this isn't original to me so i wish i could give credit to who said it but i did have someone point out that if god were to actually come down and make me omniscient so that i knew everything that would be you know then i would also know that he exists and so that'd be uh that's one way i could be convinced yeah i mean i wonder then i mean if, so, if you were to take a little DMT, you might think you had that state of mind, right? It's true, but it goes away um, after the DMT wears off. Yeah, I suppose. But, I mean, you could literally, if you know, people ex- report the experience of, like, going somewhere and talking to intelligent agents when they're on DMT mm-hmm. for, like, 15 minutes, right? And if you if 
if he's like, hey, you're here, here's omniscience. And you're like, Gah! and then you come back and it's like, guys, I saw it. I had it all. Like that, that's not a real experience. Or, excuse no. me, that's, that's a quote, real experience, but that's not a real epiphany. No, well, that's right? also not real omniscience. Yeah, but yeah, I suppose. But I don't know. I, I, would, I would put real omniscience maybe in this. Like, I don't, I guess if it was real omniscience, I would know it wasn't a trick omniscience. <laughs> right. So I guess that's, that's the rub there. Okay, so solved. So uh, Martina Mail says, I wouldn't say I'm a theist because I, I apportion so little probability mass to that hypothesis. If you're claiming that the words rational and Bayesian and implying that as a Bayesian rationalist you were also a theist, then you need to have some really extraordinary evidence in favor of theism. If the rationalist label means anything at all, it means that you can't just believe things that you find convenient or aesthetically appealing to believe and continue to use the label. Mm. I think that's fair. And, you know, I, I'm i not gatekeeping rationalism. You know, it, I'm, I'm, there's probably somewhere out there a handful of, like, sincerely devout cyber rationalists and as the elder conspirator here i will gladly take on the burden of gatekeeping rationalism <laughs> for us <laughs> fair enough you know and, I, and i'm tempted to too i'm i'm torn between being politically expedient and not being a dick i mean i appreciate your comment calvin i think it's i think it's thoughtful i don't think like people should necessarily be excluded because being around rationalists help people helps people to become more rational you know yeah so i yeah we've had people before who are into uh, things that I consider woo, basically, like, you know, magic, and uh, I think we've had a, a theist before, and, you know, sure, I'll still hang out with them, I'm not gonna shun anyone, I, I don't think the label is, I don't think you can really be a rationalist the, the, theist, but on the other hand, I'm not gonna, like, kick you out of the community just for that, I'm like, yeah, if you aren't abusing anyone, and you're trying to use your rationality, stay, and eventually, eh, you'll probably come around. Yeah, and I think... And if not, whatever. You do you. Yeah, and and in not so many words, I think it's not that it's like, because we don't allow that nonsense over here, but mainly because it's a contradiction and like you're just not getting it. Mm. It's like saying, like, I'm a martial artist and I'm I'm a black belt, but I uh, I can't move or I refuse to move or something, right? Okay. And it's like, then you're not going to be able to beat anybody up. It's like, oh, that's not the point, though. I'm, I'm really a black belt. And it's like, or yeah, like, you know, you, you came into an accident and you couldn't move anymore or something. It's like, sorry, you're not a black belt anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, because if, if part of the test of being a black belt is that you can beat up a blue belt and you can't do that, well, then it just happens to be that you can't. So it's like, it's just kind of a contradiction. Former in, black belt, though. Yeah, absolutely, sure. But so and it's about a an, title to have had. And it's about an analogy I, I made up on the fly. I think. It's, I don't know, like, I think the way that this works in in some circumstances when you're talking with people is like, what's something that you don't believe in? And, you know, usually it's like aliens or Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster or something. And maybe an apologist would be willing to say, well, I assign a non-zero, non-negligible probability to all of those. I, I would ask but, someone who's Christian, uh, what's a Hindu god that you do believe in? Right. That's actually a good point. Yeah. And I, I don't know, and I, maybe, I, my impression... And if they ten... can't name one Hindu god that they do actually believe in, I'll be like, that's the same level of belief that I ascribe to your god. I like it. And it it could be that a a truly introspective apologist would say, I believe in all of them or something. But that almost sounds like a cop-out, too. Yeah, Maybe, at that point, know. you don't really have any religion. Yeah, if you believe in all of them... You're just then... a spiritual hippie. And, hey, you can be a spiritual hippie-ish, but it's, uh, it's one of those Some of the best things... people are spiritual hippies, you know? Yeah. They tend to be really nice. Some of my best friends are spiritually hippies. <laughs> um, oh my god, I just said that, didn't I? But, oh, I didn't say my best friends. That's right, I just you said, said you some people. people. Yeah, um, Yeah. no, it's... I think it's just like... You wouldn't consider somebody a scientist if they didn't believe in DNA. Like, 
not just not just they they challenged you know in, uh, Mendelian inheritance or, or or evolution or something. Although I think that that would be a good disqualifier. I mean, you could be like I don't know geologist or some kind of high energy physics or something, and not necessarily know anything about DNA and be like, yeah, I don't believe in that. Sounds weird to me. Let's say you can't be a biologist if you don't believe in DNA. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that that's like this, right? Except this isn't like a dogma. Mm-hmm. This is DNA isn't isn't a a prescribed belief that you're told you have to accept to become a biologist. It's just like, if you look at biology, that's the conclusion that you can't help but find. Right. And if you find something else and you've, you've got really good evidence for it, publish a paper, get your Nobel prize. Like if you, if you overthrow DNA, if, if, if it turns out that DNA isn't real and we've just been tricked for the last 60 years, mm-hmm. um, that'd be super weird. Right. And somebody would be really interested to hear that. But it wouldn't be enough to say, well, I, I assign a non-zero probability to the fact that DNA doesn't do anything or isn't real. That's, 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 not, a, that's not a belief that even pays rent, you yeah. know? Because um, if you're going to behave in the rest of your life like DNA is real, this analogy is now becoming tortured because most of us don't care that DNA is real. But If, if you, you were a biologist going through your career. Yeah. yeah. You, you would have to keep making the... It, it's a whole thing. So yeah. anyway, I thought it was fun. And I really liked Morgan Mel's uh, contribution there. So let's wrap this up with some GPT-2 comments. Yeah, sure. I'm very ill-equipped to handle all the good ones, but um, I'll do my best. So Okay. Uh, so we had some uh, skepticism on the GPT-2. Chebatron, Chebatron uh, says that in responding to... Oh, I think it was responding more mail saying GPT-2 knows that the semantic tokens it uses are related to each other by rules, each token having its own rules. And at this point, people were starting to discuss, like, what does GPT-2 know, you know? And... Uh, Chepatron says, I highly doubt GPT-2 has any representation of semantics in its model. You're correct about relation rules, but what are those rules? You construct English text using grammar rules. You're also using vocabulary as a mapping between concepts and specific words. You have a personal style. For GPT-2, those rules are, after this word, the most likely one to go to is this other word. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but GPT-2 is just a buffed-up Markov chain generator. It has a decent look behind buffer and takes into account lots of values, not just the last one, but in its essence, it's just that. Don't take this as me being dismissive. GPT-2 is very impressive for what it is, but it doesn't bring us closer to AGI in any meaningful way. It demonstrates that neural nets can scale. It's good for all sorts of expert systems dealing with highly specific tasks, but it's not a missing piece for AGI. That's a, I think that's a good comment. I think, yeah, I guess it doesn't bring us closer to artificial general intelligence in a meaningful way. I think I agree with that. Um, what it does bring us closer to is, you know, you can have a conversation with a robot about a book. It, not yet, but we're getting close, right? Yeah. Um, if you could have an not actual actually, conversation, it, that would be intelligence. You know what? And I, I take that back, actually. GPT-2 doesn't seem to get us closer to be, being able to have, mm, I don't understand it well enough to say whether or not if GPT-2 or if GPT-5 if we could have a conversation about the Lord of the Rings with it, where it could teach me something I didn't know mm. other than like a, a, par- a passage I missed or something. Cause it, I don't think it quite, it doesn't work on a holistic understanding of the, the, of the, if I was talking Lord of the Rings of the trilogy, right? Right. It works on like word distributions and how often I see these things with this things. Yeah. So it, I don't even think, yeah, GPT five in my, I'm sure dad, that's two is even like the second version of this. <laughs> I'm sure I'm just torturing the hell out of this. I don't think that version 5.0 will be able to like, challenge Stephen Colbert on like thoughtful insightfulness on Lord of the Rings. And I used him because he's a big nerd with this. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it could probably, I would say certainly challenge him on trivia about like who, who's related to who and how I, I think there's a difference between trivia and like thoughtful analysis though. I agree that there, I agree with the second part that there's a difference between those two things, but does it even have a real running memory of like, you know, our, our, uh, 
what's the daughter's name? The daughter elf that Erwin. Erwin. Um, or Eowyn. Eowyn. No, you're no right. wait. Eowyn was the uh, Rohan guy. My bad. Got no, that's Eomer. Who cares? Too many names. <laughs> the elf daughter. If 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 uh, if Liv Tyler is is. Uh, oh my is, God! You know an actress's name. Yeah, I know, right? That's crazy. Because she was related to the guy from Aerosmith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is his daughter. Yeah, actually, I think that it wasn't. They weren't even raised together. It was like he had it. He had her with a groupie. Um, really? Don't correct. Don't don't. I thought it was like a model. Well, I mean, she 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 is related to him. I yeah, think, yeah. but I I don't think that they grew up together. I don't think that he was like her father. I think that he was. I think that I think that he was her biological father, but not like her. In Yondu's words, she was. He was her father, but not her daddy. In the timeless words of Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It was Arwen, the name of the That's uh, right, elf. Yeah. In any case, if you find out if my trivia is right, but then, uh, if Agent Smith's daughter was Arwen, that, or Elrond, I don't know who that guy's name is, then... Yeah, she was the daughter of a, of a model and singer, which right. makes me think it wasn't just some random groupie, because generally... Oh, huh. Yeah, she named her after... Her last name was after uh, Todd Rudgerin, who was... She's claiming that Todd Rudgerin was the biological father... Dun, dun, dun. At age ten or eleven, Liv met Steven Tyler and figured out he was her father. Okay, yeah. And now we all so, know more about Liv Tyler than we ever thought we would before we started this podcast. So, <laughs> well, uh, you already knew this apparently. I just didn't know it. I don't know if it counts. Nah, funny. I don't know if this counts as knowledge because I wasn't really sure. But, okay. Um, yeah. So what? I, but this is my long way of getting to. I don't know if GPT two knows that Arwen is Elrond's daughter. I mean, right? it certainly knows. It knows that those go together sometimes. Uh-huh. But like, I think it it would be it, easy it, enough to be. Like, it there's some concept of a daughter is a relationship. It doesn't have concepts. It just has it has word mappings. Yeah, but so I, what I'm getting at is I don't know if this would be enough. I don't think that this kind of neural net is the thing that would engage you in a good conversation about this. It would know it, what a daughter is in the real world, but it knows that how the words daughter, father, and all those are related in terms of words. I guess I was just curious if it would be it if you ever that like a daughter is a thing that comes from a father and a mother. I, I guess maybe I wasn't sure if like GPT two ever had like probabilistic estimates where it could be like no no I like if I if I challenged it and it's like no no it was actually someone else's they're like no no I'm pretty sure. And I don't know if GPT two should... has that kind of of like insight into its own probability distributions or if that's even how it works. No, you're right. I mean, we're using we shouldn't use the word no because there's a lot of implicit assumptions with the word no right now. Right. But we have maps of concepts in our brains that cover a lot of things. But I think GPT-2's our... maps of concepts are just a lot thinner and, and I think... only work on words. And I guess what I was getting at is that my impression was that they did that it didn't quite work in a way that like if I challenged it, if it could say, I'm pretty sure that this mm-hmm. is the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be able to give me text examples or something, but it couldn't say, really, I read this and I gave it like a 99% confidence level that this was the case. Right, right, right. I think it's just like, I saw the word Arwen, Elrond, and daughter together a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much else. I think I kind of lost myself. Other than, oh no, I was agreeing with, with what uh, Chebatron was saying. This isn't AGI stuff. Um, and then I was briefly thinking for a while that this might be, hey, I can have a cool conversation with a robot about a book. But then I walked it back on that and said, wait, no, I don't think that this is, this is that either. Yeah. This is something that it can give me very often accurate trivia about the book. Right. It certainly couldn't have a conversation with you about it. Cool. Uh, Mordinamail responds, or not responds, but Mordinamail has a counterpoint. For me, Alpha Star and GPT-2 were a one-two punch that made me much more concerned than I had been and moved my AI timetables up slightly. Before now, it wasn't obvious that StarCraft II is a game that can be played superhumanly well without anything that looks like long-term planning or counterfactual reasoning. The way humans play relies on a combination of past experience, narrow skills, and what-if mental simulations of the opponent. 
building a superhuman StarCraft II agent out of nothing more than LSTM, which is long, short for Long Short-Term Memory. Uh, nothing more than Long Short-Term Memory units indicates that you can completely do away with planning, even when the action space is very large, even when the state space is very large, even when the possibilities are combat combinatorially enormous. Yes, humans can get good at StarCraft II with much less than 200 years of time played, although those humans are usually studying the replays of older masters to bootstrap, but I think it's worthwhile to focus on the inverse of this observation, that a sophisticated problem domain which looks like it ought to require planning and model-based counterfactual reasoning actually requires no such thing. What other problem domains seem like they ought to require planning and counterfactual reasoning, but can probably be conquered with nothing more advanced than a deep, long, short-term memory network. That's a provocative, thought-provoking question, right? Because, like, this looks fucking impossible, doesn't it? Oh, wait, we did it. Yeah. Um, what else looks like that? Lots of things, right? Yeah. Yeah. It also reminds me, brings me back to various science fiction stories, including most recently, I think Peter Watts has been doing this, that kind of assert that consciousness is on the net a drain, and any sufficiently advanced species will either evolve out of consciousness or remove it on purpose in order to be more competitive this brings to mind like the most ridiculous but to me one of the like most uh not ri ridiculous sounding but also kind of, one of the most like it, it seems startlingly plausible hypotheses of like why people sleep or why everything sleeps basically because mm -hmm. like in the evolutionary long-term view of organisms and individual bodies we're just vehicles for our genes to ride around and reproduce right mm -hmm. well we only need to be like awake long enough to do that and the rest of the time we should just be doing nothing and staying safe conserve energy to conserve energy and to, to stay safe while we then like go out reproduce and then you know return to that state so like sleeping is more of the natural state there and so in that sense consciousness is like other than the fact that i guess sleeping is also beneficial or whatever but i thought that was mm -hmm. kind of like hauntingly compelling yeah and yeah now he's saying basically the same thing it looks like long-term planning and consciousness isn't that important for solving a lot of th things that we used to think it was important for and people were making that argument about driving 10 years ago mm -hmm. you know and like now we know driving robot driving is a solved problem or if it's not 100 percent solved it's a no one denies now that well i don't think desires be. that it's a solvable problem right yeah driving is complicated there's lots to do but it turns out it's not that hard yeah. <laughs> so or it is that hard but we can we can solve it with right. brute force. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's not intractably hard for a robot to do. Yeah. Yeah. Morden Mill continues, and now we have GPT-2. People keep calling it a language model. It is obviously more than a language model. It is a concept model. It clearly has a complex web of understanding of conceptual relationships. It knows that water is wet, that wet things are slippery, that slippery things make people fall, etc. It knows, quote unquote, and again we're using that word. This abstractly and without the kind of concrete reference that you and I have access to, but I would argue that it still counts as knowledge and conceptual understanding. Much like I was saying that I think knowing that a daughter is, the way daughter is related to father is something that is encoded in that web of, of, of concepts, even if it doesn't know what a daughter or a father is in the real world. Yeah, see, I, I guess I'm, my understanding of GPT-2 isn't sufficient because I'm, I didn't spend a lot of time researching it, and I get the impression that there's a lot of groundwork I have to cover to get my head around it, but I was thinking that it was more like a, a well-calibrated, a very strongly calibrated, like, text prediction, or, or it, in my understanding, which I think very well may, may be wrong, but if it's right, it doesn't have, like, a confidence node that it's like, I'm pretty sure of this, it just has, like, it just has the next word, and maybe some of the previous ones. But anyway, go on, yeah. I'm going to skip just a little bit and continue. For me, all of this adds up to the following. Humans are actually pretty dumb. The things we think are hard are not hard. Certainly not as hard as we think they are. 
The kludge that is the human brain. Is it kludge or kludge? Uh, I never was sure how to pronounce that word. The only word that I saw was one that you skipped, and that was uh, copacetic, which I liked the Taylor shout out because <laughs> she used that word 15 times in worms. So. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Maybe, you know, exaggerating, but she used it a lot. So that was the most times I've ever seen the word copacetic. Okay. Any case, I wanted to shout out that I noticed that, Matt. So well done. Uh, the kludge that is the human brain is good at doing a wide variety of things, but any individual thing we do ultimately requires less CPU power than you find on your cell phone. Yes, the training phase for these systems tends to involve huge amounts of compute, but we're only getting more efficient at that part. And the train system ends up being something that, as Alexander Wales noted, can fit inside a virtual machine on a netbook. Yeah, it was four gigs. And uh, I'm not sure how many gigs the human brain is, but to me, I mean, four gigs is... Well, it's funny because like now it's nothing. And yet I remember 15 years ago when like the new large 256 megabyte flash drive was $60. Yeah. So I um, remember the first time I heard the term gigabyte and I thought someone was like pulling my leg because it sounded stupid. <laughs> like gig. Sure. Whatever, man. Right. Okay. The only reason GPT-2 isn't obviously scarier than it already is, is that it wasn't really asked to do anything other than predict, than predict text given text. So imagine this, another AI system trained purely to identify logical incoherence or contradiction in written text. Not that hard to do, I wouldn't think. There are easy versions of this that can be made without even needing deep learning, but a full deep learning system with lots of training data would do an even better job. Now imagine connecting this system with GPT-2 such that GPT-2 generates a large number of possible essays rather than just one, and the logical coherence bot judges which essay is the most logically coherent. Usually such systems are trained in tandem such that they get even better at doing their joint job. Now you have a new system which does what GPT-2 does, except doesn't make nearly as many of the kinds of obvious mistakes that GPT-2 does. Now just think about other types of simple things that could be plugged into AlphaStar or GPT-2, and you start to see the road to AGI. Yeah, I like that. I think that that sort of hybrid thing is what we're, is what we're both kind of converging on here. Um, this tool on its own is, is cool, but it's not on its own sufficient to do the job. And yet, training up a logical consistency bot, and I mean, that's the thing too, is the training times with these is not like training a person where you can give them a few years in school and read a bunch of books and write a bunch of essays. It's like hours. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, subjectively, it's hundreds of years, but whatever yeah. it's hours <laughs> yeah for us at our at our scale that's all we care about yeah. it's pretty wild i'm i'm excited about it we'll see what shakes out one final comment from google plex oh, actually i had one here on oh okay cool. uh so we kind of took these out of order we read chevatron's first then we did more dinamails which was the parent comment of his oh was that what it was yeah oh okay oh wait no i'm sorry they, they kind of had a bit back and forth here so there was um chevatron had his own comment and then there was another one underneath matt's comment here so i'll read that one really quick too in mm -hmm. the child to uh matt's comment was another chevatron one where he quotes it clearly has a complex of understanding of conceptual relationships it knows water is wet that wet things are slippery that slippery things make people fall etc and then chevatron says no it doesn't it knows none of that the only thing it knows that wet the sequence of character is not a concept often is seen around quote water another sequence of character is not a concept it's just, a, it's just a statistical model. It's not any deeper than that. No conceptual knowledge at all. Quote, is that it wasn't really asked to do anything other than predict, other than predict text given text. Unquote. It literally cannot do anything else. Arguably, you can take that, that, that size neural net and train it on cat pictures, and it would be able to probably generate a decent cat pic, like the this person does not exist thing that we talked about. Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to do any, it wouldn't be able to do anything text prediction or anything else. Um, this is why GPT-2 is not scary. Its main innovation is parameter big spacing enough to encode a decent statistical model of English and nothing more. So then Matt kind of grabs out that, no, it doesn't, no conceptual knowledge quote, and then says, 
You're just a machine that models statistical relationships. We have more context for our statistical relationships. Uh, well, you know, At this point, we're just reading their thread. We are, and yeah. it was a really good thread. So um, no, this isn't a this isn't worth reading thing. This is just a time constraint thing. So And um, just we don't want to be reading other threads. Yeah. yeah. This thread exists. It's on uh, under episode 80 on the subreddit, the reward and peril of GPT-2. Yeah. Um, check it out. It was a great, great discussion. One of our most highly commented uh, posts in the last few months. So. Yeah. And I got to plug really quick too. If you like that level of like thoughtful analysis and and good use of words, Matt can talk like that in real time too. Yeah, that's um, true. So I I once again want to plug the we've got warm and we've got ward podcasts as well as the Doofcast episodes of well all of them, but they're good with or without Matt too. But Matt's and Matt and Scott discuss uh, Worm and Ward, a great web serial fiction. If you haven't read it, I strongly recommend it. In just that like that poignant and deep and like thoughtful analysis. And what's great too, is that wild bill is playing at the same level, the author, mm -hmm. like everything that he's doing is clearly on purpose. And that's the sort of stuff that like I could write like a short story with like a beginning, middle and end. And it would be like, yep, things happened. And it told the little thing I wanted it to. Yeah. I could never put in like without some serious time. And it would suck for me to do it mm -hmm. like symbolism and like implied meanings and this and that. Like, I just, I don't have that. And so Wild Bill is a brilliant author, and they, they dissect his work brilliantly. So everyone check that out if you haven't yet. Excellent. Uh, to wrap up the GPT-2, and I think also this episode, Googleplex Byte says, I'm saying that given enough data and computing power, GPT-2 could understand abstract mathematics as well as a mathematician does. Abstract mathematics doesn't require any reference to the physical universe. So GPT-2 would have every tool it needs to understand it as well as a, as well as a mathematician can. I think we'll leave that to computer scientists to <laughs> to, di to dissect there without trying with trying to taboo the confusing words like understand and that sort of stuff and knowledge. Yeah. Maybe I mean I guess yeah you can you know you can you can write something that'll give you the results of an equation of you know throwing a baseball. It doesn't have to know what a baseball is. That's not abstract know. mathematics though. Um, that's fair. Yeah. So, but I mean, uh, GPT two's language analysis isn't abstract either. It's it's giving you actual words given actual input, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm missing stuff. Yeah. I. I I have a job, well I work in the field of of computers, but I my computer science is drastically lacking. And if that's not obvious, well if that wasn't obvious before, it is now. You are not an AI programmer, is what you're saying, <laughs> or a computer scientist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I went to a boot camp. They don't train us computer science. They train us on how to code, which is that's the that's the main difference to get out. By for example, actually I've had a couple people ask about that in email and and in uh, Patreon comments and stuff. Uh, it's worth pointing out, I guess, if anyone's curious, analyses of like uh, like post computer science graduates and post bootcamp graduates for software development, mm -hmm. it tends to be that boot campers can code faster and better than your average computer science graduate. What they can't do is like describe data structures or different uh, data models for, or like different um, uh, models for building applications on or really any computer algorithmic, any stuff that, that that's all skipped over in the like how to do this course. So um, if you want a good, long understanding, do the long, hard way. If you want to be able to hit the keyboard and get a job in six months, maybe do a boot camp. Oh, we do have one comment from me. Yeah. Uh, I said, this happened pretty fast and linked to uh, Alphabet Google and a thing that Alphabet made. Uh, Alphabet made a Chrome extension that is designed to tune out toxic comments. It just will scan the comments, rate them on toxicity based on its understanding of the language and uh, not show you, you know, past a certain level that you choose. I prefer the plugin that just changes all the YouTube comments to like meow and like woof and all that stuff. But. <laughs> right. But that was, that was pretty fucking impressive that like it could in some way have a rating of toxicity based on reading a comment and 
you know i wonder show them or not i wonder what like the success overlap is with like something this complicated to for that chrome extension Mm -hmm. versus one that just like has like a list of keywords like i don't know right uh, they're probably a bunch of profanity and just cuts those out too i bet i bet i bet that one just gets like 80 percent of the same ones this one gets i would assume but that's really cool and this one's actually done the hard way which is really cool i'd be curious to see and this is a link that I haven't read yet. So if you're having a discussion, a discussion about toxic, about toxicity in general, or about co- like the the content that's there or something, mm-hmm. um, if that would also get flagged, like probably. I would imagine not. I mean, I imagine if you keep using the be... word, I imagine if you keep using the word "cunt" and "fag," you're going to get flagged <laughs> no matter what, right? Yeah, I. Well, I mean, that's where a traditional flagger would totally get it. Yeah. This thing is supposed to like judge tone, though. All right, I'm going to click this. I'm going to see if I can play around with it and see what we get out of it later. So that's it for listener feedback. We did have a comment here or something that you put in here from uh, Julia Gillis' Facebook. Do you want to do that really quick too? No. All right, we'll save that one because that one's not time sensitive. And as far as I know, she doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. Um, Or at least she hasn't listened to my requests to have her on the podcast. So. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Shall we move on to the less wrong posts? Yeah, let's. feels really weird doing the less wrong posts without Jess here. We can skip them and talk about other stuff or we can... Knock them out really quick. It's up yeah, to you. Let's. We should do them. All right. We'll we'll trudge on, and we'll just we'll we'll acknowledge up front that these won't be as much fun without her. Yeah. So we had three posts this week, or this episode rather, because they were kind of short, and I felt like they kind of tied into each other. Let's see. So the first one was knowing about biases can hurt people, and my one sentence read on this is like basically if all you have is the knowledge that biases exist and how to identify them, it doesn't it 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 can be a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, where you and he, I think he uses the word sophisticated arguer here. This is like somebody well, knows. Who, who let's knows. not do the sophisticated arguer yet. All right, that's fine. Okay, but this is kind of like akin to like knowing logical fallacies, but not practicing not using them. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's, so, it's, so you can point out slippery slopes and false dichotomies with your opponents, but like you're not paying attention to your own words. Right. That you, that that can happen with biases too. Yeah. You always apply them to other people and be like, oh, this is where you're doing wrong, and you don't look at your own arguments the same way. Yeah. Which I, just makes you get more and more entrenched in the viewpoint you already hold. Especially if like it's never if you'd never really accept the fact that like you're doing that, mm-hmm. and then you find yourself winning all these arguments, and you're like, I must be right. Um, it can be definitely a, a vicious feedback cycle. Yeah. Um, it starts off with a fun little story of once upon a time I tried to tell my mother about the problem of expert calibration, saying, "quote So when an expert says they're not, they're ninety nine percent confident, it only happens about seventy percent of the time." Unquote. Then there was a pause. As suddenly, I realized I was speaking to my mother, and I hastily added, Of course, you've got to make sure to apply that skepticism even-handedly, including to yourself, rather than just using it to argue against anything you disagree with. And, as my mother said, Are you kidding? I use this all the time. It's great. <laughs> um, so it's it's a lesson in knowing that these are tools that, if used properly, will work both ways. You can't just use them to rip other people's po- things apart. But to dive into the actual content of the post. We can and he had a really interesting thing that he said, too. Do you think you are helping these people who who are sophisticated in this way? Do you think you're making them more effective rationalists if you just gave them these these lists of biases? And I was like, wow, that's I hate ever being in a position of saying that more knowledge makes people worse off, right? So I don't want to say that, but it it, it sounds almost like you know, in this case, it's it's it is it's not yeah, and I, I it 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 does run against that that grain of like you know why should knowledge hurt? But this. This is knowledge that's... If you just gave them that, you're not making them a more effective rationalist. You're making them more effective at fooling themselves, which is the opposite of what we want. Right. Because for some reason, I'm not a car person, but all my analogies involve cars. <laughs> if, if I taught you how the go pedal works and not the brake, 
are you a better driver than you were before? Right. Or probably not. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess a little. You can you can do one thing with the car. You, are you a safer driver? Absolutely not. You're a safer driver knowing nothing about how the car works than you are just knowing how to how to hit the gas pedal. Yeah. Right. So this that's actually not the worst analogy in the world, mm. and I even tied it to cars. What is it with you and cars, man? I don't know. Are you sure you're not a car nerd? Pretty sure. Do you have like a broken down car you're working on every weekend? I've had lots of broken cars. I think it's more just like they're really simple and they do lots of little things. And it's, I can usually find a way to pigeonhole an analogy into them. But yeah. So he, he gives off. I don't know. Well, we'll burn through them really quick. Uh, Tabor and no, Lodge. Let's not go through all of them. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, there are whatever. Six. Eh, whatever. I thought there were. Unless you want to burn through them. Go um, ahead then. We'll just jump through. Me being a dick. No, you're totally fine. There's. We'll run through really quick. There's uh, Tabor and Lodge's motivated skepticism in the evolution, evaluation rather, of political beliefs. The confirmation of six predictions. There's the prior attitude effect, where subjects who feel strongly about an issue, even when encouraged to be objective, will evaluate supportive arguments more favorably than contrary arguments. Uh, Number two, disconfirmation bias. Subjects will spend more time in cognitive resources denigrating contrary arguments than supporting ones. Uh, Number three, confirmation bias. Subjects free to choose their information sources will seek out supportive rather than contrary sources. Four, attitude polarization. Exposing subjects to an apparently balanced set of pro and con arguments will exaggerate their initial position or their initial polarization. Uh, Number five, attitude strength effect. Subjects voicing stronger attitudes will be more prone to the above biases. And number six, the sophistication effect. Politically knowledgeable subjects, because they possess a greater ammunition in which to counter-argue incongruent facts and arguments, will be more prone to the above biases. I felt like those were worth going into because everyone's heard of many of these, like confirmation bias, um, probably attitude polarization. But the main thing is that there's there's the effect that if you're just aware of the first five, those those are great tools to, to use to rip people other, other people apart. But the the sophist- this is where it introduces the, the sophisticated arguer. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah. Also, I thought that it was interesting because I, I was tripped up briefly on prior a, prior attitude effect versus confirmation bias, um, which are different. So, um, and he pointed out that even telling people about this isn't necessarily enough. He says uh, that he told someone about the sophisticated argument, the sophisticated arguer effect, where if you know all these biases, they they will tend to use them just to promote their own position. And next time that Eliezer said something that the person didn't like, he accused Eliezer of being a sophisticated arguer. Didn't try to point out any particular sophisticated argument or any particular flaw. Just shook his head and said that uh, what was it? I, I was apparently using my own intelligence to defeat itself. So he, he basically had just gotten yet another fully general counter-argument. Which I don't think we've discussed that topic before, and yet it was a hyperlink in the post. So somehow we missed it. It wasn't a hyperlink. It was... I think. Oh, it wasn't. Yeah. Why am I tripping up here? Oh, okay. I think it's something that was already being discussed, like in comments and such. And so I guess possibly other bloggers, fully general counter arguments. So they added all in caps as the you know thing that's actually already known in the community. But there was never a post about it. I somehow read it this afternoon and thought there was. So I'm crazy. So I guess we didn't discuss uh, fully general counter arguments because we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. But the gist is, is that it's this like one thing you can wave. That's like, nope, conversation stopper, I'm done. Yeah. Which, like... I, I generally run into, there's children dying in Africa or in China or whatever. That thing you're doing right now doesn't matter. And it's like, okay. Or running with our, our anti-theism run from a little earlier. Like the God works in mysterious ways to answer any and all, like, why is God killing poor babies? Right, right. Um, it's like, well, he works how in mysterious you, ways. How could you possibly know the mind of God? Yeah. He has his reasons that you puny humans cannot comprehend. And to say that, like, 
got again not not necessarily picking on theism but to run with that example uh, not necessarily not picking on theism but okay. to run with that example like the the comeback god works mysterious ways isn't an argument it's not a it's not even really a position it's like it's just a this is my stop to your your argument and nothing you can say will change the fact that god works mysterious ways right so basically it, it's a tool you can use to like quote win any argument but not in a way that like makes either of you better off for having had the argument right right yeah all right yeah. So he says, even the notion of a sophisticated arguer can be deadly if it leaps all too readily to the mind when you encounter a seemingly intelligent person who says something you don't like. And I thought that was, uh, that was almost depressing in a way that even even that is misused. You know, I remember reading when I first read this that like this might come up in real like rationalist life if I you know had conversations with rationalists and stuff. I don't think I've ever been accused of being a sophisticated arguer, which might mean. Which it, a might be a good sign that I'm not a sophisticated arguer, um, in the in the pejorative sense. Right, right. Um, or it could mean that my friends aren't sufficiently rational to point out when I am being one. Okay. But it's it's the kind of thing that in a in a conversation between two people with the right training, if we were discussing, I don't know, somebody's position on something, and I'd be like, Enoch, are you sure that's not you know sophisticated argumentation? Mm-hmm. You would be you you would in idealistically pause and say, oh, maybe it is. Right. And so it's it's another thing to be aware of when you're introspecting but the thing is like no one has the motivation to investigate all claims as rigorously as they would investigate something like your mother is a pedophile right that would be something where i would be like no she's not allow me to prove it to you um and there's you know people feel that way about the things they really care about but no one likes gonna go and investigate the opposite position because they just don't have the passion and the energy for it i think i think this is one of these places where it's better to have a variety of views on things and get your get people who believe differently both investigating something you mean you mean you mean like you couldn't be an impartial investigator if someone raised this charge seriously no i just mean you cannot you cannot be this impartial we're not perfect bayesian machines right we we already have our passions and our things we care about and limits to our time and our energy and our motivation so i think the best thing to do if like you want to and now, now that I say this, um, I'm sorry, my head's running ahead of my mouth. I was going to say the best thing you want to do uh, when you want to investigate something is to get two people who are both really interested in the subject, but in opposite directions and both look into it at the same time and present their viewpoints to each other or to a interested third party. And then that reminded me that, yeah, that's a thing that Scott Alexander is doing with his adversarial collaboration. Yeah. And it's just, it's catching on a little bit more. But yeah, I mean... That's the reason why you want to have debates and such, right? Because you, you're you all into looking up the stuff that supports your position, and you need someone else who has the same sort of passion to look into stuff that is against your position so that you at least have the uh, all the available data in front of you instead of just the stuff that you had the time and the inclination to find. Does that tie into to the sophisticated arguer? I th- Like, that just sounds like a good lesson in, like, being aware that you might be too invested in something. Yeah. I don't I, know I, that... I might be missing something. I think the sophisticated arguer would be someone who would dismiss the other side quickly. Or, yeah, they would use all of their sophisticated arguments to point out why the other side's stupid, but not really defeat not really defeat it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Or even say to the other side, you, you are blinding yourself with your own sophisticated arguments instead of actually accepting my position. Hmm. Yeah. I think maybe choosing an emotionally charged example is... I don't know. Now I'm kind of worrying, wondering if I don't sufficiently care about things. Because, like... <laughs> 
if someone told me that, I'd be like, wait, really? What do you, why do you think that? My answer, my response, depending on who they were and what, where this came from, but like, if you told me that my mom was a pedophile, I'd be like, why the hell would you say that? Like, <laughs> yeah. what do you know that I don't know? Right. And, I, and if she's not, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But if you had really compelling evidence, I'd kind of want to know. <laughs> um, so, like, that reminds, this, all right, this is a sidebar, but we're in the, we're in the end game now. So, yeah. remember, we had the conversation way back in the day with Katrina about, like, whether or not you can harm somebody who's dead. Mm, yeah and you and i are both kind of running with the aristotelian like virtue of like sure you can destroy the reputation or something yeah what i wish i had asked her was like if say you died and i put a bunch of meat in your fridge and a bunch of child porn on your computer would i not have harmed you yeah so like in the technical sense no because she's dead but in like other sense it's like all the good that you've done in the world is now destroyed by the fact that like i've created this convincing fraud that or this convincing uh, framework like you're this fraud who ate meat this whole time and never believed your your virtues oh and you 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 had kitty porn on your computer yeah so like so that that book that, i raved about a couple episodes ago monster baru the monster baru cormorant hold on can you say that a little slower because when you when i plugged that in the last episode i had to ask you what it was because i couldn't understand what you said okay the uh the book was the monster baru cormorant her name is baru First name is Baru, last name is Cormorant. Okay, so that's why I couldn't like Google it because they weren't words. Yes. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Cormorant is actually a word. It's a type of bird. Okay. Yeah. So All right. Last name is after a bird. Anyways, uh, but yeah, in the book, they, uh, there's a character that makes the point that it can't be that things don't matter anymore after someone is dead because we all die. And so that means that nothing matters. So that's arguing from the bottom, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things have to matter even after you're dead. The other, the, the what I thought you were going to say, and this is the other side of that coin, is that like things have to matter after they're dead because we care about dead people. Yeah, that's and it. we care about the impact that they had. Like Martin Luther King didn't stop being important the day he was shot, yeah. right? So your your posthumous impact matters. And don't get me wrong, this was not a dig on Katrina. What I was, what the reason I was thinking about this recently was I can't remember what brought it up. Something about that, like can you harm dead people, came back to mind just a few weeks ago, and. It's not like I ha- thought I had this great gotcha. It's like, I wish I had asked her that because mm. I wonder if that would have illustrated my point better. Mm. Anyway, so wrapping this one up, um, this post, uh, the literature on bias is mostly cognitive psychology for cognitive psychology's sake. I had to give my audience their dire warnings during that one lecture or they would probably not hear them at all. Mm. And I don't think we talked about it. That lecture he's talking about is that when he, he became, of, this. became of the sophisticated arguer bias that now he teaches that in the initial talk, he never that's always part of the like the first exposure yeah and i guess you could leave the room before he gets there but you're not going to get any good weapons you're going to get vague things like um like population insensitivity or something as you know an example of a of a of a bad heuristic and then but yeah so being aware of the sophisticated arguer trap is is important for a good rationalist i don't know kind of like i the the analogy to to rationality and martial arts is hit so many times and so acute that mm-hmm. like it's worth it, it comes to mind easily right mm-hmm. this might be like using a headbutt to strike somebody like if you hit them right it hurts them a lot but it hurts you too but you might not notice it maybe okay. is that too tortured of analogy i would say like you probably want to teach someone how to fall early on in martial arts and if you don't they're going to hurt themselves a lot practicing it that's a good that's a good way to think of it too yeah and i guess just to be aware that like some moves can damage you too if you're not careful about them maybe yeah all right maybe it's not a smooth analogy with that particular one post two debiasing as non-self-destruction so this starts with a quote from nick bostrom quote a question from nick bostrom quote slash question it's in quotes 
Okay. It's a uh, question from Nick Bostrom. What practical things does debiasing enable us to do other than refraining from buying lottery tickets? You know, that's the fair question from the outside, right? I mean, we've and, asked basically that same question using becoming rationalists as instead of debiasing a number of times on this podcast. Yeah, that's a good point. And debiasing isn't sufficient to become a rationalist, no. but it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Yudkowsky says that it seems to me that it's that how to be smart varies wildly between professions. Yet such concepts as willing to admit you lost or policy debates should not appear one-sided or plan to overcome your flaws instead of just confessing them seem like they could all apply to many professions. All of this is a device not so much about how to be extraordinarily clever as rather how not to be stupid, which I think is something that we hit on before when trying to answer the question of somebody like what's something you do rationally in daily life. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's not so much like I do these five things every day. It's more like I just try not to suck and I try to use these tools. And it, it's so familiar. I almost think that we must, did we quote this post before? Was think, this just something we had on our minds because we've read it? I think I quote, I think I informally quoted it not verbatim okay. during that conversation. Okay. Yeah. Because I use the example of like, and maybe that's in this post or not, but it's not in the quotes that we pulled out. Like, not sucking at being a janitor and not sucking at being a lawyer are prob- have, probably have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. But being great at both of those professions have like very little in common. Yeah. Uh, so there's the basic base level art of just like not sucking at what you're doing. That tends to be pretty consistent across lots of things. And I mean, it's just like, I don't know, if you've had lots of jobs and you've had lots of coworkers and you've had good and bad ones... A lot of the bad ones will have a lot of the same habits as a lot of the other bad ones, right? But the good ones can be good in different ways. I mean, the bad ones will be the ones that, you know, whatever, don't show up to work or are mean or something like that, right? So Not showing up is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big one. And it's a good sign that you suck at your job. Debiasing is mostly not about how to be extraordinarily clever, but about how to not be stupid. Its great successes are disasters that do not materialize, defeats that never happen, mistakes that no one sees because they are not made. Often you can't even be sure that something would have gone wrong if you had not tried to debias yourself. You don't always see the bullet that doesn't hit you. That's the quote that always stuck with me. Because it also sucks, cause, and he goes on to point out that, like, because that makes shitty anecdotal, that makes shitty evidence, right? Yeah. It's like, remember all those times I didn't get killed? <laughs> right. I don't know, man, running back to driving. It's like, you know, if you're a good driver, you might not even notice all the times that you don't kill yourself when you're driving, right? Mm-hmm. You'll notice some of the close calls if you if you do screw up. And if you're like, I was texting and then, oh, shit, that car came out faster than I thought it was going to. Yeah. And yet it's your reaction and your skill as a good driver that lets you notice and then not have that happen. But that's not like, that's a victory because it's not a loss, yeah. right? But it's not like a I won at not crashing, unless you're ga- the game you're playing is not crashing. You see what I mean? It's like an inversion of winning yeah, in yeah. the sense of not losing, yeah. which I'm just hitting home because that really struck well with me as a, as that's a very basic thing right and I, I remember the the writer who wrote in or the commenter who wrote in to us once um he lived oh, i forget which country it was but it was one of the developing nations and he said how much how often he saw people doing simple somewhat self-destructive things that if they had just known some rationalism it would have made a difference and if the entire community had known that it would have like been a huge level up to the whole community to not make those errors. And it's just things like that that you don't see. Yeah. Especially when your entire community is already practicing it. We're going to have to have Jess talk about her time in the Bay Area and like visiting. I'm not sure exactly where she's staying or if she's like, you know, in a in a hub where people are all doing this. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, like what a small microcosm of society would look like if they're all doing the, you know, all the things right. And they're all not losing all the if, if they're all missing all the easy bullets mm-hmm. um, or the easily dodgeable bullets. I mean, I imagine, for example, like, you know, electricity bill never not gets paid, right? Yeah. But I, I'm kind of curious if there are, like, victories. If everyone's together and doing this, what are the awesome things that are happening? 
So that'd be curious to see. And if Jess can't do it, we'll get somebody from Reach who can, or we'll try. So, um, yeah, I mean, the great victories, and this is more on the point I was making, uh, the great victories of debiasing are exactly the lottery tickets we didn't buy, the hopes and dreams we kept in the real world instead of diverting them into infinitesimal probabilities. The triumphs of, debi of debiasing are cults not joined, optimistic assumptions rejecting, rejected during planning, time not wasted on blind alleys. It's the art of non-self-destruction. And, yeah. I mean, this is actually kind of funny because he mentions the... Um, you know, cults not rejected and stuff. Or cults not joined. That's right. Excuse me. Not not joined. Uh, only don't reject one cult. Um, this one. Uh, when I was a kid, probably up until my early teenage years, I was convinced that like, all right, here's what I'm going to do and how I'm going to win at life. I'm going to find a magical artifact. Hmm. I'm, you, this, all these stories have to come from somewhere. Okay. As a kid, I didn't think that it was all wishful thinking. Right. I assumed that it was all rooted somewhere. It's like, I'm going to find that a magic amulet or the magic ring or something, and I'm going to get these powers. Hmm. And... I mean, how dumb would my life have turned out if I didn't shake that off after a couple of years, right? Yeah. Like, if, if all of my, like, working to, like, get enough money was so I could go, you know, whatever, dig in Egyptian pyramids or something to go try and find a magic trinket. Maybe like, you'd be a faith healer right now, man, raking in the money. Or maybe I'd be a real magic person, not just right. a faith healer, right? Oh, well, um, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the shyster art of, like, pretend faith healing where yeah. I'll pull out your cancerous tumor with sleight of hand. But, um, yeah, if I, could, if I could do something. But, yeah, but the thing is, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Um, so it was just funny because I wonder if I'd read this as a kid, what I would have thought. As a kid, to give my younger self exactly as little credit as he deserves, mm -hmm. I think I would have thought, sure, but this one's different, <laughs> right? <laughs> this 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 pyramid scheme's real. Right. Uh, it's got an actual pyramid, man. <laughs> exactly. Fact is, most people. Oh, this is back to the back to the post. The fact is, most people who take a half-hearted pot shot at biasing themselves, excuse me, at debiasing themselves don't get a huge amount of benefit, a mileage out of it. This is one of those things you have to work at for quite a while before you get good at it, especially since there's currently no source of systematic training or even a decent manual. The sequences end up being a decent manual to get started, but he's writing it right now, so yeah. in this time. if for And this is a quote, or this is a link to the um, the 10 Virtues of Rationality post that we should actually just do for one of our, our sequence posts. Yeah. So... This was uh, all hyperlink. this next sentence. If, for many years, you practice the techniques and submit yourself to strict constraints, it may not be, or it may be that you will glimpse the center. But until then, mistakes avoided are just replaced by other mistakes. It takes time for your minds to become significantly quieter. Indeed, a little knowledge of cognitive, cognitive biases often hurts. That quote got cut off. Is often harmful, I'm assuming is what I was going to say. I think it was a link back to the prior post. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Do you want to stop there? I don't. I kind of don't want to do the third one because I'm not sure it's as related, and I'm sort of burnt. That's totally fine. Okay. We've got one bullet point, then I'll hit it. And sure, we'll sure. Call it yeah, good. sorry. No, you're totally fine. I appreciate the. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. So the last thing on here is that, um, as for public proof of like that, this does anything that rationality is useful. He says I can see at least three ways of that it could come about. First, there might be founded an order of base craft for people who are serious about. Uh, serious about it and graduates of these dojos might prove systematically more successful even after controlling for measures of fluid intelligence second you could just you could wait for some individual or group working on important specific or domain specific problem um, but also known for their commitment to debiasing to, de to produce a spectacularly huge success public success third there might be found techniques that can be taught easily and have readily measurable results and then a simple controlled experiment could serve as public proof, at least for those who att who attend to science. As far as these go, I think CFAR is kind of doing the third. Mm -hmm. And the first two, I've I've heard people in in our local community who are trying to do something kind of like that, mm -hmm. where they they want to 
and it's not necessarily committing to like a, it's more, I guess, the first one of saying, look, I'm successful here and here and here because of my rationality training. And these are all the stupid mistakes I didn't make. Mm-hmm. I think they're, they're in the progress now of, or in the process now of trying to refine something like that that's presentable to people. Oh, cool. So these things are still happening. I'm sure there's way more happening outside of the Denver area that, uh, you know, I wonder what people, like I said, in the Bay Area or at Far and all them yeah. are up to. That's where um, all the big names are. Yeah, that's where all the big names are. And yet, like, I'm pretty sure if we had had, you know, this this great breakthrough at some point, we might have come, we might have heard a word about, about it here yet, right? Right, right. So yeah. I think they're still working on it. But granted, this was, what, written 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. Some things take a while. So. Yeah. Well, and 10 years ago, there was really no one yet. I mean, there was a, a few posters on overcomingbias.com. Right. Which later turned into less wrong, but not yet at this point even. Yeah. That's fair. And I mean, I guess the other thing too is like, I guess I'm, I'm just kind of heading off like the, the rejoinder of like, well, why hasn't this produced anything like this yet? Because like, this is like untreaded water in social science. And I mean, and if, and if you had, if you had told me, hey, it's been two years, I've made a breathtaking discovery in a new area of social science, I'd be like, okay, well, I'm kind of suspicious, right? And there have been steps. There have been very positive motions and, like I said, movements working on these things. But And it's not like, like there hasn't been success. There yeah. has been a huge amount of public interest in finally addressing friendly AI due, you know, in large part due to the work of Eliezer and the early rationalists, uh, Nick Bostrom, of course, the the AI movement was kicked off by, by these people. And there is a, you know, large supportive community in the Bay Area that a lot of these people can live meaningful lives in now. I mean, I would consider all three of those to be pretty big successes too. Yeah. And I mean, we've heard from other like non-Bay Area based rationality groups that have report similar, you know, meaning and friends and and communities. So yeah, these things are happening. I think just as far as like, why isn't there a manual yet? Like that, you know, eight quick steps to not sucking at life. (laughs) Because there's no such thing. Yeah. First of all, there might not be eight quick steps, but B, I'm sure there's a hundred books with that title. And see, we've only, the community's only been at this for, you know, a little over a decade. It, I, I strongly suspect, I'm very confident that things like this will, will be coming out. But, you know, so far as I know, nothing has been published today that is a guaranteed manual. So cognitive, sci- or cognitive science and, and, like, social sciences are hard. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the downside. It's like, you know, anyone who knows anything about, like, treating depression or, or you know, dealing with, with a mental disorder or or mental illness or whatever, like what works for one patient doesn't necessarily work for another. And so part of like working with the person is figuring out what approach they need because of what specifically we need to work on. So like, it's not, I, what I am also strongly confident in it is that this isn't going to be a set of steps that works for 90% of people, right? This is going to be the kinds of things that, all right, cool. Well, we found that 90% of people who do all hundred of these things tend to do really well. Maybe only need a dozen, you know? So anyway, it has run on quite a bit and we did, uh, we we did have a third one we we're gonna do, but frankly, it's kind of mathy and boring. I thought, well, it yeah. he dives into more math than I think is strictly necessary, but it's not like I'm maybe I'm just math averse. <laughs> okay, but it's just uh, it's it's on inductive bias, which we will actually I think say for next time because yeah. it's been a while. So so for next time, our less wrong posts will be inductive bias and futuristic predictions as consumable goods. Cool. So all that's left for this episode is to thank our patron. Oren Millman, thank you so much for your support, as as you've heard before, but it stays true. This means a lot. We're sorry you only get two-thirds of the normal thanks, since there's right. no Jess here today. <laughs> Nonetheless, your your support is appreciated just as much as if she actually was here. Yeah. So She uh, is also thankful in spirit. That's right. So yeah, other than that, um, you know, rating review on iTunes, share with your friends, etc. All the stuff. People plug all the stuff at podcasts, but you guys know what to do. Yeah. We trust you. 
<laughs> I don't have anything else to say. Seriously, though, thanks, you guys. It's it's awesome. Yeah. This has been a fun thing that we've been doing for just over three years. Oh, man. It's been three years now. Wait, no. Two. Yeah, two. No, I think it's been three. Because no, we do one every two. Oh, wait. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It has been three. Man. Yeah. Suddenly, I feel older. And we've had a patron to thank every week since we started. Man, that's true. Yeah. There, there was a time where we were like getting near the bottom end of the list, and I was like, well... I guess when we get to the end of the list, we just stop the podcast because we're out of patrons. <laughs> not, not seriously, but jokingly. And then, yeah, it's just been increasing again lately. And wow, we've got, we've got the list still. So yeah, yeah, thanks, guys. And so yeah, if you want to add your name to the list, jump on Patreon, find us, throw us a buck or two if you feel like it. Once again, if you don't, iTunes, friends, all that stuff. But mm-hmm. we're just happy you listen. This is fun. I don't know. I someone wrote in, and I don't think we touched their comment. It was just it was on the subreddit. Um, or maybe via email. I don't know, once in a while people write in and say that they like listening to it, and that means a lot. That's all I was going to say. So that means a lot to me, and it's fun to do. So thanks. All right. We will see all you in two weeks. Sounds good. Bye. Oh, wait, just kidding. We have a couple more things we wanted to hit before the end of the episode, so we're going to do those now. Yes. So the first thing I wanted to do was one of the feedbacks is I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, boy. Yeah, feedback from the co-host. Eh, not, non-listener feedback is sometimes sometimes permitted, I guess. <laughs> right. I, I warned you about this one, though. Uh, in our last episode, you said that you went into the pot shop when they were having a woman's ladies' night, like 50% off pot or something? Some percent. Something like, it was something non-negligible, like 25 or something, yeah. Yeah, and you said, uh, well, I, I'm a woman or I identify as a woman or something. And the guy gave you this look and you said, just kidding, because I didn't want to be that asshole. And I was like... I was curious, what what do you mean by I didn't want to be that asshole? You bet. Um, so this would have been two episodes ago, because this is the second feedback episode, yeah. So Right. Um, oh, so, was, that, was that a non-feedback episode when we said that? Oh, maybe it wasn't. So maybe it was. Oh, you know what? It probably was the one that came out today. Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. yeah. So um, the one that came out today, this one's coming out two weeks from recording. So, yeah. I can't remember the specifics. I, I don't know. He might have said no or something first. It wasn't just a look. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely waited for a response. But the my main reason for like not pushing the point at all was because it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I didn't. There are people who are actually in that position that maybe feel like if there's some promotion going on that like they they qualify more than I do because I'm I was just trying to save 25% or whatever. Right. That, that was basically it. Like okay. I, I didn't I, want I, to claim a status that you don't actually feel. Yeah. Okay. It, w- it would have been disingenuous for me to push it beyond the like, oh, as long, all you have to say is those magic words and get the percent off or something. Yeah. Um, and I, I never go, I'd been to this place. I went with a couple of coworkers. They were driving. So it was on the way home. And um, this isn't like a, a what am I saying? A, a deal I'm missing out on because I buy so much stuff. I almost right. never go to the pot store. So it's not a huge deal. But because I had prep time to think of this, I was thinking of this on the drive over, one could make a utilitarian argument that I ought to push the point because they clearly didn't have a policy in place <laughs> for somebody who was in the position that I was claiming to be in, right? Yeah. So if I had, if I had made a stink and was like, no, look, you guys are discriminating against me, they might have actually been forced to like refine a policy that was more inclusive or if they're dicks, more exclusive, right? Yeah, they probably wouldn't. What they'd probably say is like, what it was is I'm sure this is a promotion that didn't come from the cashier, right? Mm-hmm. So if you've ever worked a register you know you get people who are like, well, man, why can't you guys, why is this so expensive? And it's like, oh, you're right. Me, the 7.15 hour employee, determines how much those cost. Right. Um, so I knew that this wasn't his decision. It was something that they might have to escalate up. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious because I thought, I thought the dick part was that um, challenging the 
the narrative that anyone can identify or choose their gender without any sort of excuses or reasons given or something like that. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder what he was worried about. Yeah, that's a good point. Certainly, I don't think he, I should have been like demanded to justify why I felt that way. Yeah. I, the, so the dick part wasn't that exactly. It was more just that because it wasn't genuine coming from me. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was since it was insincere. So we had at least one other thing you wanted to hit, which yes, was something. But on... I, I was just wondering. Oh, yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, yeah. So I guess the thing is, then they would have had to explicitly say, you know, we're gendering you, as opposed to anyone can choose their gender and then like would that would be the asshole move of forcing that on them but it was just the asshole move of not wanting to claim an an identity you don't actually have yeah exactly that was it wasn't me defending them their their assumption or their like need for a justification um that if if i was in that if i was in a class that i was claiming to be in i definitely it would not have been a natural issue of me whatsoever to push it right. and if anyone is feeling discriminated against and they're actually being discriminated against and not like me just pretending then yeah by all means push it make a stink do make change but yeah my main thing was that since i i'm not actually in a situation where i feel like i identify as a woman then it it was definitely insincere so Okay. That it was an asshole to my honesty not to them for being you know gendering whatever jerks yeah so okay yeah uh the other thing was that uh so like i said i was um in pain on monday and so that was on my mind when we got to the aging question just like man this really sucks getting old is gonna suck is this gonna be this is gonna be my life now (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly. but uh the the reason that i originally copied and pasted that in uh, was because i wanted to say that actually i think there's a lot of really good things about aging too um, not oh, necessi- but, but they, didn't, they weren't salient on Monday when you were thinking of all the bad things. Exactly. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Like, not necessarily the aging... Well, no, some parts of the aging process itself. Okay, so, first things that are not integral to the aging process, but merely the process of having more years of life, is just you pick up a lot of stuff over time. Like, I got all sorts of crazy miscellaneous trivia in my head and other things that I know. I have a lot of skills that I've learned over time, which are just really useful. And And, like, I didn't know those 10 years ago and sometimes people like compare people of different ages and like how you look at how more advanced that guy is like yeah okay but he's also had 15 more years of life you know he's just had a lot more time to absorb things or she or they or whatever so uh you just having those extra years of life comes in really handy with most most everything and uh it's also helped me like, I have the experience of fighting crippling depression now, so I'm generally pretty decent at it uh, when it's not at its worst. I uh, will say that sex has gotten better constantly throughout my life. Like, uh, five years ago, I was having the best sex I'd ever had. Now I'm having even better sex than that. I'm just like, you learn. Sex Hell is- yeah, high five, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not like a high-frequency activity, like uh, throwing a ball is, that you can do it 20 times in an hour to practice at it, right? So the... <laughs> <laughs> just learning more about your body and interacting with other people and figuring things out really makes a difference. Am I hearing whispers of a like sex tips episode for the patrons or something? <laughs> no. <laughs> Heck no. The, the uh, I think that would be weird. Um, I think so too. But it's uh, there are instructional videos for that. Exactly. Yeah. And they're not found at XTube. Although, maybe they are. They are found on Pornhub. For right. Pornhub has all sorts of neat things. They have, like, strictly educational material. Yeah. Which is funny, because... I mean, now we're... This is definitely tangential, but... 
like one of the one of the downsides of porn, which is actually on my mind because um, Sam Harris did an interview for Playboy mm. a couple weeks ago. That's cool. Yeah, they did like a photo shoot and stuff, which like so they like showed that at the be- at the top of the webpage, I guess. Yeah. Um, so he's got like these fancy pictures and then like just quick Q and A on like intellectual dark web stuff, um, thoughts on religion, afterlife, drugs, and then porn. Yeah. And um, I don't remember what his full answer was, and it doesn't really relate because my answer is basically. As long as it's not psychologically damaging, then go nuts. Yeah. Or to you, or obviously to the participants. You know, if you're watching stuff with non-consensual people or people who aren't well, that's really not porn, exactly, that's a filmed crime. That's a crime. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the downsides is like I remember I was at the cusp of of manhood when the internet was first like getting into everyone's house, mm-hmm. and so I remember you know being at a friend's house or you know occasionally at my place waiting for a picture to load line by line, right? <laughs> yes. And so that was. Like fortunately for me, that was the that was the the uh, level of technology available for the thirteen year old porn seeker, right, or however old I was. Mm-hmm. Now you can get ten eighty uh, pixels on your phone in the bathroom. So yeah. like, it's I I I'm curious, not to sound like a curmudgeon on the old man, but like I do worry that that would be. Um, malforming for good attitudes for a 13 year old yeah i really think that sexual sex ed should actually be about sex and not just procreation and sexual diseases because that's that's a long that's a long leap because large parts of the country right now are anti-sex ed in the first place i know and it's not even about sex but no sex ed really should teach you about sex and how to at least the basics of how to do it because uh porn is the only education a lot of people get and it is a shit education it's like trying to teach someone to be a law enforcement officer by making them watch uh, John Woo movies. No one actually runs downstairs leaning on a banister shooting two pistols and killing 20 guys, right? Yeah, you're not going to get to be a good cop by watching Die Hard. No, that's yeah, not that, how any of this works. That's actually a really good analogy. It's fun um, to watch, but it's not how real life works. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we don't have any, I doubt, children listening to this show, but I mean... I'm just, you know, some of the, the convoluted sex positions that, that, that these athletes can do, like, they might feel good, but they're not the kind of thing you want to try at home without practice and probably, like, a trainer there to make sure you don't, you know, concuss the, your partner or something, right? right? So, um, yeah, so other than that, why did we get on porn? Uh, oh, because the internet is terrible. I really think the internet should go, think, uh, this look could never happen. I wish that the internet could go back to the days of being funded by porn. Because where everyone just has like porn ads on their site, because uh, that at least wasn't terrible. I mean, I guess it made it technically unsafe for minors or whatever. But now the internet is run by making people as outraged at their most hated outgroup as possible and stoking that, and it's basically ruining society. And I think that's a much worse way to fund the internet than having porn banners everywhere. It'd be interesting to see, like, if Facebook had porn banners, if you'd get half as mad. Right. Because, like, you, you'd be like, oh, man, my idiot uncle is pro with it. Oh, wow, look at that that ad over <laughs> here. And, like, that's got to detract from some of the rage, right? You can't be both, like, you know, super angry in your head and while diverting blood to elsewhere in the body. So um, I just I think that the, the, the culture of generating clicks and money from outrage has harmed society far more than porn ever did or porn ever could. Yeah, it's... Interesting. The other, I mean, one cool thing about porn and tech is that porn tends to be at like the forefront of all like new internet development. Mm-hmm. So like I, they were among the first to do anything with like 3D um, videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, I mean, if that's your thing, you know, they it, pushed the the secure web payments and the technology behind that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the tech scene. Uh, if you get a chance to work for a porn company, sounds awesome. Yeah. 
So there's that. I feel like it was less tangential. Oh, we were talking about sex and stuff. Yeah, that was all. Better places to learn about oh, yeah, yeah. sex stuff. Other th- cool things about getting old. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. But you... that, but uh, I guess the to bring back the, the porn digression is that Pornhub has educational videos in addition right. to pornography. Yeah. Um, so if you live in a place that doesn't do sex ed, they actually have sexual education videos. And which things is kind that of aren't even related to sex. Pornhub has a few things that are just genuinely not porn at all, and it's weird and interesting. I think Kumail Nanjiani's movie, um, The Big Sick, the whole thing is available on Pornhub. <laughs> uh, somebody tweeted him a link. This was... No, I, I Maybe must have seen it on Reddit or something. just make the internet Pornhub from now on. <laughs> I was thinking about that recently. I don't know how it came to mind. It might have been because I'm never on Snapchat, but my brother has uh, ferrets, and he sends me videos once in a while, so they're great, so I'm on Snapchat again. And... If you go to like the stories section, there's like ads for other things, mm-hmm. and one of them was like an oddly satisfying channel. And there's a great you, or there's a great subreddit called oddly satisfying, mm-hmm. where it's like you know somebody like um, fitting a piece of formed wood that they'd cut just to fit exactly right, and it's like seamless. Yeah. And so like you know those like oh, oh that feels so good to watch. Yeah. Um, there was a recommended sh- thing for that, but that's the only place I've ever seen like an oddly satisfying tag, and I didn't know that Reddit sold my stuff to Snapchat. So I was thinking sure. just recently. Why, uh, like, it would be nice um, to have, like, I don't know, an alternative hub where there, where there was another, because, like, this internet's never going away, mm-hmm. this, this model, but if there, was a, if there was a competing web. We need to, actual internets in real life. That'd be cool. Yeah. Hey. Hey, I could hear uh, the music. It was dope. You said it wasn't too loud. No, no, it's no, fine. Yeah. I, was, I was enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah, see, that's, that's another good thing about getting older. You learn, you have time to learn skills. Like, if you just practice guitar one hour a week, it's not a lot of time. Even, like, two 30-hour sessions a week, it's not a lot of time to spend. Whatever, you spend a half hour on it, your fingers are a little sore. But you keep that up for five years, you're a goddamn good gu- guitar player after that time. Yeah. And five years passes way sooner than you'd notice. I think the other... all of a sudden, you're a guy who's got five years' experience playing guitar. And there's, like, more free time with a lot of case, in a lot of cases. Mm, yeah. um, like, my mom's learning paint. Well, I mean, she probably took painting in school or something. But, like, she's doing painting stuff for fun now. Yeah. I mentioned uh, Rachel's mom does uh, cello. And that's something that she's picked up in the last few years. So, like, it's just awesome. the freedom of doing stuff. Yeah. And the, the emotional dulling we were talking about actually can be a good thing, too, in a way. You don't, you don't get as crazy by everything. You're like, yeah, this is no big deal. I've gone through this sort of thing before. Yeah, like you, other people can even tell other people, "Hey, I, I've had this sort of thing happen before. Don't panic. Here's what you do." Like yeah. I can, I can only imagine how awesome it must have been to live in a village or a tribe with elders that would just know things, as opposed to having to figure out everything yourself, getting occasional advice from one or two older people, and finding everything else on YouTube. Yeah, it's. I mean, I learn better talking to people too. But on the plus side, like our generation the people who are, you know, savvy with the internet now have access to elders all the time. Right, right. And whatever Online. niche thing it is you want to know, there's a YouTube tutorial for it. Yeah. Um, which, you know, yeah, probably has its pros and cons. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that. Speaking of aging, there's this thing I remember in school where, you know, like especially older teachers and maybe even people's parents because, like, you'd be annoyed that, you know, you're, everyone probably has worked with a coworker or something where they're just completely tech illiterate mm-hmm. and... You know, I've, I've heard from multiple people that like they'll know people who will, uh, they'll receive an email attachment in the form of a PDF and then print it and then scan it and save it to their desktop because that's the only way that they know to do it. <laughs> okay. And it's just like random pointless shit like that. And then we try and correct them on it and be like, why don't you just do it this way? Oh, I'm retiring in five years. It's no big deal. Uh, and it's like, it's kind of annoying though. It mm-hmm. takes you 30 minutes to do something that should take five seconds. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, the 
the response from a lot of the, the stereotypical response from older people is like, oh, well, you know, since I don't need to know it because it's new stuff and I'm retiring soon, it's not a big deal. And you'll be in this situation too someday. Mm. Um, I challenge that assumption. Uh, I can see why it's a natural assumption because that's what happened previously. And that's mm. probably happened previously for as long as tech has been booming, right? Um, and yet our generation has grown up with advancing tech and mm. has kept up with it this whole time. Every single year we got to learn new things. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I... I don't think my dad could play, you know, anything on an N64, you know, like it, which isn't to say that's a life skill, but that kind of stuff is transferable. Being able to, I mean, I remember they got a T, my parents got a TV a couple of years ago that has like, it's like a smart TV with like, you can download Netflix onto the TV rather than have a a third party hardware that you plug into it. And uh, they couldn't figure out like, how do I select an open Netflix? Uh And so it was kind of an intuitive it, it took a like a mental switch for me to like, hey, look, you see that highlighted square on the screen? Touch the direction on the remote that you want that square to go in, and that's the highlighted one. Mm-hmm. But like that's super intuitive to me because I've been doing that since I was, a, I guess, basically shortly after I learned to walk. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. like, um, And it's, it's not even just technical skills. It's a lot of things you learn throughout life that I see younger people making these mistakes now, and I'm like, well, only one way to learn that way thing is to actually learn it. I mean, for, okay, as a, as a, non-specific example uh a few years ago i was playing rock band and we were playing the song won't get fooled again by the who right which is a really fun song to play it's got a cool message but it's basically about uh after vietnam they wrote the song about we were fooled into a war under false pretenses it's not going to happen to us again and now i know what that song's about okay cool and uh what happens Iraq war comes around we get told there's wmds in there and we go into war again like the exact same fucking scenario. I was like, it, it it happened again, and I don't know. Maybe. So, so to be clear, I'm not pro Iraq War, uh-huh. but that war made a lot more sense than the Vietnam War. I mean, because the, there were there were actual pretenses of actual danger. Well, there was actual pretenses of actual communist danger. Well, that's the thing is they were going to be communist over there. That was the scary danger. Not that they <laughs> no, have bombs no. that could kill us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in in the modern day, yes, that's funny. But uh, back in the '60s, the the Red rise scare. of communism was actually uh, a scary thing. It was a scary thing. I and I, I guess I remember being flabbergasted when I learned that that was the reason for the for the Vietnam War, whatever in school. And I was like, wait, so the concern was that they were going to have bad government, like, <laughs> over there, this small country. Oh, well, there and- was a concern about it dominoing and taking over everything. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It, yeah. All right. So I guess that, that, that at least my, t- my teacher didn't even make that point. They were just like, yep, people didn't like communism. Mm. I'm like, okay, but that seems like a weird reason to go in and, you know, napalm a country. But okay, 60s, whatever. They were weird. Yeah. 70s, whatever. But I mean, this shit just keeps happening and I can't help but feeling this is one of the reasons death is bullshit. You spend your entire fucking life learning all sorts of things about yourself and how to work life and just how to live and be a good person. And just all these skills you pick up, too, during life. And you get to the end of it, and then you die. And the next generation has to start all the fuck over from nothing. I'm like, just how much more advanced could we be if it wasn't for this death bullshit hitting the reset button constantly? We we need to get rid of this. Because yeah. I'm sick and tired of seeing the same mistakes being made over and over. And, God, every generation, people got to relearn how to read and do numbers and talk and... Ugh. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool if that useless 15-year period in your life only happened, like, once per... I mean, it does only happen once per person, but only once per whatever yeah. era. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, And that you, you wouldn't, wouldn't have to keep learning the same political mistakes and everything. Yeah, it's... 
I'm looking forward to seeing that experiment carry out. Mm. Uh, hopefully, I get to see it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, death. Death is bad. Oh, does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah, deathisbad.com. Deathisbadblog.com. Okay, deathisbadblog.com. Because death is bad itself was taken. Hmm. Uh, is that a good site? It's a squatter site. Ah, dicks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is one other nice thing about aging, at least for men. Um, I'm assuming this doesn't apply for women, but uh, the turns out that a lot of women find men more attractive as they get older. So, like, if you have trouble getting getting laid in your teens and early 20s it's not necessarily that bad a thing because like looking distinguished is a thing that a lot of people a lot of female people are attracted to and probably and probably some male people and probably some male but it depends if you age like ted danson or if you age like donald trump right right so i mean you got to take care of yourself and have probably baseline level of attractiveness but i mean ted danson's 70 and he's i'm I would bet a thousand dollars right now. He still pulls. Like there's, there's no way. <laughs> I got that I mean, exact George quote Clooney from. I was a, in his fifties when he was voted sexiest man alive. Uh, but what, you got the quote from? It was a comedian that the the, word, the reason I used the word pulls there because that's kind of uh, you know a that's not a very nice way to say that he's still sexually active. Right, right, but, right. Um, I got that. It was some, some comedian said something like that. But yeah, I mean Ted Danson's dashing as all hell. Yeah. And I did. I blew my mind when I learned he was seventy years old. So mm-hmm. yeah. But even for people who aren't like just naturally huge good looks the fact that growing out of the boyishness and starting to look like you have some resources and some maturity at your disposal can be attractive we'll see if i ever get there <laughs> I, st- I still look boyish mm-hmm. um what was i going to say about oh aging yeah so that's a perk for men um i you know some older women are, are attractive too i think I, but unfortunately i think it does tend to skew one way but that's just yeah. society whatever um i think it's at least in part evolution too yeah that's fair I, I my, my understanding, having not gone through menopause myself, is that the process of, of being like currently going through menopause is kind of annoying. But then you're done with having periods, and uh, I think you still get like all the bad effects from having the periods, though, including the bleeding. Ex- well, except for the bleeding, probably, but like everything else that you get from periods that makes it awful, is still comes back every month. I thought all the like half the awful stuff is related to the bleeding, like the cramps and all that stuff. And I think all that stuff keeps happening. I thought the cramps were from shattering your uterine lining, which causes, which is why you had, which why you bleed. We need a woman here to. We do, to yeah. Weigh in well, on we this. also need a woman who's gone through menopause, or, or at just least one who knows who's about, read about this yeah. and ever talked to someone who's older. Uh, man, Th- this is how you. This is why you shouldn't have two dudes on a podcast. <laughs> at least not talking about menopause. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah. All right. Let's move on to something we know something about. Like. Uh. Actually, was that everything? That was the only two things that we had. Oh, yeah. That was the only two things we had. Uh, like the rest of this podcast. Yeah. Oh, wait. Is this being put in the end or near the front? Or in the this middle? will be at the end. This will be at the end. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that was everything I had. I think that's everything I had. Okay. Um, I mean, I, there's a lot of topics I want to get around to discussing here at some point. At some point, we need to have a criminal justice episode because I was just ranting about that before we started recording. Yeah. Um, and I can think of a couple people who might be good, good resources for that. So and we got UBI, criminal justice... Uh, gender. Uh, I really want to talk to Jess about the whole reach and thing that she's seeing right now when yeah. she gets back. So yeah, we got we got a bunch of things. Like and there's that. there's those. I also we haven't had like a like futurism episode or like I don't know if we need a whole episode for anti death, but that could be part of our transhumanism episode, which we've never done ex- exclusively. Uh, no, we have. We did a transhumanism trans- transhumanism episode. I linked it in the show notes that just went up today. Oh yeah. Okay, so we have done one. Episode 38 or 39. Yeah, that was, that was ages ago. It was. It's time to do that one again. Okay. We need to have an EA person on to talk about EA. Yep. Um, effective altruism. And there's at least a couple others. But, oh, I, I guess 
as part of futurism, maybe separate. Something about we we've talked a little bit this episode, last episode about like saving for retirement and mm. how to do that in a way that uh, is there a, in a couple and very quickly is there like a a position that's common in the rationalist community on that? Because I don't think the rationalist community per se, but there's. I mean, just very basic, easy advice. Oh, no. I mean, I know what the general advice is, but I wasn't sure if rationalists said like, no, no, it makes more sense to spend now because when we're 50, we'll all be post-UBI, post-singularity, all that stuff. Oh. I was curious I, if there's any any sort of belief leaning that way or something. Uh, certainly nothing explicit that I know of. Yeah, me either. I think that sounds... I mean, individually, people can make that decision for themselves if they think that things are that uh, coming that quickly. But uh, that sounds a lot to me like sell all your possessions and follow me sort of thing that Jesus did. And then it turned out the world didn't end in his lifetime, which is like, dope. But at least the perk with this is that it's not give me all your possessions or sell them. It's like, go have fun. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, and then you'll be destitute when you're 60. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All righty. Well, thank you for coming over and helping me get that off my chest. Hey, absolutely. And this is the real ending of the episode. So thanks for uh, your bonus little few minutes here. And we'll see you guys all again in a couple weeks. Okay. Peace out. Just here. It feels like I'm waiting for Jess to show up, you know? I'm like, oh, that's right, she's not coming. <laughs> <laughs>